Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. G'day, Mike Hussey here, but you can call me Mr. Supercoach. KFC Supercoach BBL is back and there's 25 grand up for grabs. So what are you waiting for? Play today at supercoach.com.au. T's and C's apply. New South Wales authorisation number TP slash 01005. Wrapping up the day's sporting issues deep into the night, this is Extra Time on SENZ. I'm going to call. It is 7 o'clock, you're listening to SENZ, Mark Watson with you alongside of me, Ben Francis. You know Ben's on because it's probably the best music bed you will hear over the 24 hours the station is on air. He has immaculate music taste. Always different, always an eclectic mix, always highly engaging. Anyway, welcome into the programme, Mark Watson with you through to 11 o'clock tonight. Telephone number 0800 150 811. You can text us here on double eight double three. Uh, we will, after eight o'clock, open the lines and take some talkback. Want to get your thoughts on the hypocrisy of Australian sport, particularly Pat Cummins, the Australian cricketer, who seems to enjoy virtue signalling in and around climate change, like a lot of Australians. I should say a lot of Australian sportsmen, sports people, complete and utter hypocrites. And I'll give you the reasons why after eight o'clock. We will head across to the West Island with Peter Fairburn and look at some of the big issues in Australian sport and run our eye over the Rugby League World Cup, the T20 Cricket World Cup and the recent Constellation Cup in netball. Andrew McGlashan will also talk to us on the T20 Cricket World Cup. Stephen Harris will look back on the Defence Force Women's World Cup, which concluded today France getting up and beating New Zealand by nine points to six. In fact, no, it was 9-8 and an absolute thriller at College Rifles in Auckland. But I think radio and talkback is a better experience when you get involved when you have your say. So, again, that telephone number, 0800 150811. Right, we're going to talk triathlon now with one of our finest ever triathletes who's dabbles a little bit in softball as well. His name's Mark Sorensen. He joins us on the programme. Mark, good evening. Welcome. <laughs> G'day, Mark. How are you? Very well. Did you not get told that we were going to talk triathlon, the Hawaii Ironman, and not the men's <laughs> softball team and not the World Softball Championships right, that are mate. coming up? Yeah, you know that I had a, an extensive career in triathlons, thanks to your uh, guidance with training programs. Oh. Um, as we learned, I, I was was not so good going uphill, but inertia helped me going down. 
Yeah, look, it's a great thing, gravity, isn't it? It's a great thing. Uh, but you, <laughs> mind you, I, I do have to defend you, Mark, and say that you never confused ability with ambition at any point in your triathlon <laughs> career. You're always very humble and you're always very realistic. Yeah, yeah, I realised once the uh, racing sardines went flying by me that uh, it was a it was a matter of survival. <laughs> yeah, swim and bike for show, run for dough. Mark, uh, today you there have you named the New Zealand men's softball team to contest at the World Championships, which will kick off here in about a month's time. How difficult was it selecting that final team? Well, mate, to be honest, I'm looking forward to a uh, a full night's sleep tonight. Um, the last. With, uh, our national champs are in Christchurch over the weekend and uh, you know we've worked with some of these athletes for the last three years you know and I've seen them um, put in a huge amount of work and you know a huge amount of time and made a lot of sacrifices and, and to, to you know uh, cull it down to 16 um, was really difficult you know we we, uh, we had the team approved through uh, the appropriate channels with Sopple New Zealand yesterday and then I had to make some calls this morning um, to the young men that uh, and, and last night to the young men that had missed selection in the side and it's something that um, you know that I struggle with because it, it's you know you it's, it, it's a game of you know sport and, and, and managing people is, is about building trust and you know earning their respect and then all of a sudden after three years you've got to let them down mm-hmm. uh, and you know I it was really hard, you know, but it, it's not about me. It's about the young athletes, but it, it, it's, it was a really difficult job. And it's one part of this role that I don't enjoy, but I put a priority on because I think it's important for for these guys to hear from me rather than seeing them or hearing their name read out. Um, I, I'd like them to, you know, um, just hear it from my mouth. Um, I don't know how much they do hear after you tell them Unfortunately, you know, you've been unsuccessful and you haven't made the squad. So, you know, I'll give it a couple of days and I'll follow up with a little note, uh, email to them and just try and provide some feedback and some guidance and, you know, encouragement to, to keep going as, you know, most of the guys that miss will, will certainly play for the Black Sox at some stage, but it's just likely not to be in this campaign. And, and I say likely because there's, there has been a few campaigns where injuries have meant that... Um, you know, replacements have been brought in. Mm. When you look across the positions on a softball field, would we perhaps have the greatest strength and what positions did we perhaps maybe lack a little depth? I look through the uh, through the middle infield. We, uh, we're blessed at the moment with a lot of, lot of talent, a lot of good young talent coming through. So that, that was probably the, uh, probably the most difficult, um, in second base shortstop area, um, our catching stocks have have improved from where they were sort of four six years ago. So, you know, we had four legitimate contenders uh, competing for two spots. So, that was really positive. Um, we've always had uh, a, a good selection of outfielders, um, but I probably would have liked um, another three or four pitchers competing for for the pitching spots, just to make sure that, I mean, the guys we've got are, are the best in New Zealand, but, you know, the, the more you have, the, you know, the, uh, I know you're saying you love to have, use uh, talking about that cream rising to the top. Well, the more you've got in there churning that cream, the, the higher the, the yeah. top is going to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, running through the squad, so we've got, I will run through it too, Bradley Bennett, um, Auckland, Tawera Bishop, 
Wellington, Daniel Chapman, Auckland, Ben Anoka, Auckland, Thomas Anoka, Auckland, Cole Evans, Auckland, Joel Evans, Hutt Valley, Reese Evans, Auckland, Riley Makea, Wellington, Dante Makea, uh, Matakatea from Wellington, we've got Tane Mumu from Hutt Valley, Connor Peden from Auckland, Josh Pettit from Wellington, Jerome uh, Raimaki from Wellington, Peter Rona from North Harbour, and Cameron Watts from Canterbury. Um, where is the softball depth in places like Tauranga, Hawke's Bay, Nelson, Palmerston, Manawatu, and in particular the South Island? It seems to be very much an Auckland Wellington um, centric type team. Yeah, I mean that's how it's turned out. It's not. It's not uh, by any pre-design or anything. Um, the you know, traditionally back uh, back in the day, um, we've we've had a lot of guys come through the regional networks and regional um, associations there. You know, uh, Bay of Plenty, uh, Waikato uh, Counties, Manukau formed uh, a new association this year called North, and, and they sent a team down. Um, Cam Watts, who who is listed as his uh, play, he played for Canterbury last weekend, but he actually resides in Dunedin. Um, and he travels to Canterbury to play to get the type of competition that he needs. So we, yeah, we could, um, ideally we could stretch further with, with our regional reach, but I think we've um, I think we've got about five associations represented there in that team of 16. So uh, it's certainly dominated by Auckland and Wellington, uh, and they were in the final of the National Provincial Championships yesterday uh, with a sprinkling from... You know, outside of that, but I guess it's like all you know sports that um, that the, the top athletes want to play against the top athletes all the time, and unfortunately, that sometimes proves a magnet to pull them to the major centres. Um, you know, there's a lot of work going on in the regional areas to help um, grow and develop, and in some cases, rekindle the sport in those areas. So, you know, it would be great to see. We do see that um, the regional. Associations represented more at age group level, so you know under 15s, under 18s, um, under 23s even. Uh, but uh, I'm just trying to s- scramble here a little bit to think back to the last person making the Black Sox um, from outside the, the, I suppose, the big four areas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, look, just an observation. Certainly, nothing sinister in the question at all. It is what it is. And again, um, you know, that's the best team. It's the best team. Uh, look, Tawira Bishop. Um, he's also a member of the Auckland Tuatara. Does play baseball. Was there any sort of consideration there? Is that seen at any point as a conflict of interest, or is it just these sports just need to coexist and one enhances the other? Yeah, um, um, it's, it's a we, we, uh, we've obviously been uh, competing for talent over, you know, over more recent years. Um, I mean, Bose and the Bishop family are a long-standing, you know, softball family. Um, he he did go and play. Uh, he was signed by the Boston Red Sox and and went into uh, the minor league system, uh, and he did spend a season or two with the Tuatara. Uh, he hasn't. He did go away with the uh, the Diamond Blacks um, New Zealand baseball team last month, um, but it's uh, he's quite a unique athlete, you know, and, and he's in the catching spot. And um, I don't know if you saw, but he was actually the MVP of our national championships that finished yesterday with Wellington running out winners. So, you know, he's a quality athlete that, in the catching spot, um, has been able to. You know, make a fist of it on on both sides of the fence. Uh, it's not something I think that 
many athletes could do, uh, certainly in the short space of time. But uh, it kind of worked for him that, you know, he had cut his teeth in softball. He went on and enhanced his game and with baseball. And then, you know, the opportunity there for him to go any further disappeared. So he wanted to still play that high level of competitive ball and, and he came back. And then mm-hmm. out of the blue, he, he was off to Panama last month to uh, compete in the World Baseball Qualifier. Uh, pitching stocks, who are our marquee pitchers and do we have depth, such a, a key area in whether it be baseball or softball? Yeah, uh, Daniel Chapman and, and Josh Peters are our, uh, our two guys that, that are going to spearhead the campaign. Uh, Pitarona is um, is, the, is our third pitcher, but he'll also double as a uh, first base or, or even designated player. Um he big six foot five, long legs, long arms, um, throws the ball well, has a world class change up and we'll be looking to um integrate him into the games, I suppose, in a in a relief role to provide something different from the other two big boys that we've got. So, you know, I'm I'm pleased with, you know, the three that we've got there to work with. Um but in terms of your depth question, no, I, I, w- I would like a few more in there. Um there's some good young boys coming through but they're not quite there yet. Um, you know, they, they've been in the pool and, and competing, but there's still a little bit of water under the bridge before they, they can get to this level. But, you know, they're, they're constantly out there putting their name up um, and, and doing the work. So their time will come. Uh, but, yeah, I, I, for me, an ideal pool is, is sort of six or eight guys that we would look to select from. Uh, yeah, how many? When you're defining a good pitcher, what, what defines a good pitcher? Is it just purely speed? Um, is it the change-up? Uh, I mean, what are you looking for? To start with, that they can walk and chew gum at the same time. Yep, uh, that's that's a good starting point. <laughs> yeah. Oh, sorry, an insider joke with with softballers is that that you know, in my day I was a catcher, mate, and I used to call the signals and I used to joke that. I called the signals to, to tell the pitchers what pitch to throw because often they couldn't walk into gum at the same time. <laughs> um, you know, fantastic athletes from a standing start, one step, you know, and they're getting the ball 125 to 130 kilometres an hour. Um, so a, a combination of, of speed and accuracy is uh, is something that you really look for. So, yeah, ideally, I mean, both Josh and, and, and uh, Daniel are... Uh, in the 125 plus category, um, they they've got both a rise ball and a drop ball, uh, and uh, they throw a changeup, which is an off off pace pitch, which would typically come in maybe 110 to 115. Uh, and when the hitter's constantly looking for that quicker stuff, you're able to change speeds. The idea with that pitch is actually to change the their center, the hitter's centre of gravity, and get their balance going forward. Uh, and if you can get them leaning forward, you take away a lot of their power. So Changing speeds, changing sides of the plate, inside, outside. Um, so that's where the command side of it is really critical. That you know, just to be able to throw hard isn't good enough. You, you've got to be able to really locate it at least seventy-five percent of the time. Mm. Uh, and you know, and I, I don't know about yourself, but I've been watching, you know, the, the major league baseball playoffs recently, and you know, you watch those guys who who are getting paid a gazillion dollars, and and they still make mistakes. Yeah. you know, with their location and stuff. So it's not an exact science, but, you know, the harder you work, the better you get. Absolutely. I think once you said, if you're going to be the man, be the man every day. I think it's a great quote. Um, we've got Cole Evans, Joel Evans and Reese Evans. Are they related, someone wanting to know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, uh, Cole and Reese are brothers. 
and um, Joel is a brother from another mother. Um, no, the Joel uh, Joel's not related to uh, Colin Reese. Uh, just uh, coincidence that they've got the same last name. Mm. And um, Cole Evans, um, we probably should just mention it because it's just what I do. It's who I am. It's part of the brand. But I'm now but grammar old boy. <laughs> yes. Yes, I, knew. I was wondering. It's taken. You've done well, mate. It's taken a while for you to bring that up. Actually. Well, I think I think they've won um, nine consecutive New Zealand secondary school championships. To be perfectly damn honest, but anyway, I'll just throw that in as well, Mark. Yeah, yeah, no, quality young man, um, and he's, um, you know, I, I, he he can he could probably be in that role for uh, as long as he wants. Um, you know, good head on his shoulders, great work ethic. Um, you know, has uh, has set the benchmark in terms of our fitness standards with the guys over the last 12 months. Um, has made some unbelievable plays over the last couple of weeks that we've seen in the trials last week and the NFC over the weekend, you know. So um, for me, no better person to have in the role as captain. And, and now, you know, it's about helping him because he's, he's been in the role for a couple of years and never kept, led a game because mm-hmm. uh, we haven't played. So it's it's our job to help him. Um, rally the guys behind them and, and build them into a cohesive unit. Mm. Yeah, so how does the next four weeks look? Clearly you've come off um, a national championships, which means the players at a domestic level have um, had plenty of softball. But how does the next four weeks look in terms of building on that momentum and making sure that you go into these world championships, if I can use the term, match fit? Yeah, well, one of our objectives was to ensure that we we played the most games of any team going into the World Cup. So we wanted to be the best prepared with it being at home. Um, so with that in mind, we, we pulled the, the NFC that's just, that I've referred to and has just been completed over the weekends, typically held in, in February. But, you know, we asked Softball New Zealand for, for dispensation this year to pull it forward to create some meaningful games for the guys to ensure it helped us, you know, get as many games as possible. Um, so we're together... Next next Sunday we assemble. Um, you know, your, your opening day, typical admin um, induction type stuff, setting the scene for the for the campaign, and then uh, Monday through Thursday is a combination of um, strength and conditioning, um, softball specific stuff, and games. Um, and there is one one day where all three of those will happen in the same day. Uh, so we're looking to load. You know, uh, increase the the workload for the guys next week, and then we hit the Golden Homes Invitational next weekend, where we've got two games Friday night, three games Saturday, and two games Sunday. So seven games over the weekend. And our objective is to ensure that we hit that weekend, you know, a little bit fatigued and under a little bit of mental pressure, so that you know we're we're, we're raising the stakes and, and pressuring the guys to make decisions under fatigue. Um, from there, we send them home for a week to freshen up and come back together uh, Monday the following week in Palmerston, where on that weekend uh, that we lead into, these the top six countries in the world are having a shootout um, as a kind of a dress rehearsal for the World Cup. So we will build up there with a, uh, a lower workload uh, in preparation for that event, and then we post Palm, uh, post Palmerston. We take a couple of days driving north through the country to um, shut down from you know the intensive softball for a couple of days, and until we get to North Harbour and, and settle in at the mission, prepare for opening day against uh, Czech Republic. Mm. 
The last World Championships were held in Prague. Um, we won the World Championships in Whitehorse in 2017, but um, by your own high standards, a failed campaign in 2019. What lessons were taken from that, and what have you implemented for this campaign based on those lessons? Yeah, we uh, the lesson learned was that, one, that we were still good enough, but if we take our foot off the pedal and, and take for granted our position, that the opposition will come up and bite us in the ass. Uh, and four of the games that we lost, we were in the lead. Uh, it also highlighted that our conditioning levels weren't at a, at a standard that was required for international ball. And what was it was really evident when you know it got up around temperatures got up around 40 degrees, which was you know unusual for us to play in those type of conditions. So um, the way we were playing, uh, we we we'd gone to a uh, a more power-based game. So, you know, we're very reliant on um, the home run to win us games where, you know, previously we'd um, we'd played more of a, a accumulating style of game, so more of a Kiwi style of game where, where you're hustling for runs, you're, you're, you're working for each other, you're sacrificing at-bats to move guys around and you're just picking up a run here, run there, get through to the third or fourth innings and you've got a three-run lead and someone hits a home run. You know, and all of a sudden the game's out to six nothing. So um, we're looking to, you know, get back to I guess get back to basics a little bit with the way that we're playing, and and, and not try and play, you know, the Americans, the Canadians, the Venezuelans at, at, at their game, you know, and stick to our game uh, because it's proved to be a successful recipe for us in the past. Uh, but also ensuring that we've got the right. Uh, the right selection of athletes and the right condition of athletes to be able to play the type of game that we want to play. So, you know, it took a bit of reflecting. Um, you know, it, it, it took uh, it took some honesty uh, for, for myself as well. You know, I, I looked back and thought, how the heck did that happen um, on this campaign? Um, you know, how did we let that get by? What what were we thinking there? Um, you know, and, and, and peer-on-peer reviews as well as... You know, it's all very well sitting in front of a panel and presenting to them and having feedback, but it's the people you go to battle with that, you know, you, you value their feedback immensely, you know, and probably value it the most. And, and those are the, the discussions that, you know, were had that really meant the most, you know, and we're able to, it wasn't, the review wasn't put on any one person. It was all, you know, it was all about us. Uh, but, you know, in terms of from a personal standard, I, I, my personal view is, you know, uh, players and coaches are responsible for, for a failed result in a game, but ultimately a campaign fail sits fairly and squarely with the, the coach. So, you know, I, t- I took it personally, and it would have easily been uh, the the simple door to walk out and say, look, thanks very much, had a great career, um, someone else's turn now. But, you know, I, I felt there was um, there was a job left unfinished, and, and I needed to go back and rebuild it um, so that, you know, when, when I step away, um, I'll leave it in as good, if not better condition than what I found it. So, you know, I wasn't prepared to walk away from, from a, um, not a sinking ship, but a failed campaign. It just didn't sit right. Well, Mark Sorensen, I'm excited by just having spoken to you for the last 15 to 20 minutes. Uh, look, good luck over the next four weeks, and we look forward to following the progress. And, of course, we'll be right across it when this tournament does kick off in about a month's time. Thank you. Nice one. Thanks, Wado. Appreciate it.
There you go, the great Mark Sorensen on the programme. One of the greatest that's ever played softball, not just here in New Zealand, but globally these days, head, head of the Black Sox. That team has been named by all thing. Never easy is it having to pick a team and then people that you've got a personal relationship with having to say, hey, look, you haven't made the cut, providing a rationale, and then you throw it into their hands and see how they deal with it. And you can understand if some of them want to throw the toys. You know, they've invested their life in it. It's a dream. Um, and then some athletes, you know, it's only until when they eventually do end up making the team that they actually realise that perhaps it wasn't their time. 23 and a half minutes after seven, you're listening to SENZ. Mark Watson alongside me, Ben Francis. We'll take a break. We'll have a wee chat very shortly on the programme. We'll go to West Island. Peter Fairburn will join us. We'll talk all things Australian sport. Oh, one of the great songs. One of the great songs. Brilliant. You know that song came out, I think, in 1972? 1972 that song came out. Don't even think my family was in New Zealand then. Yeah. Um, great interview with Mark Sorensen. Good guy. Good, good guy. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, in a sporting sense, and I say this only in a sporting sense because it's not really what I would call oppression, but... We've had a lot of media coverage around the Women's Rugby World Cup, haven't we? Um, and a lot of it has been positive, but there's also been too much of the politics of it, Ben. But one team that I think has been really oppressed, purely in a sporting sense, has been softball. The blue-collar sport of softball never seems to quite get the recognition of won multiple, multiple world championships, never seems to get up for the Halberg gong, never seems to be taken seriously. Yet you go through it, United States are capable of winning it, Canada are capable of winning it, Australia, Argentina won it last time, Venezuela are very good, Mexico are very good, Japan are very good. Women's Rugby World Cup, we've got France, we've got England and we've got New Zealand and that's all that can win it. Yet if the women do win the Women's Rugby World Cup, we know we're just going to go and give them the Halberg Award because it'll be a lovely little box-ticking exercise and it'll just fit with the political environment and all the other nonsense and crap that we continue to hear around it, which has ruined it for me. But if softball win the Men's Softball World Championship, they think they'll get nominated or talked about or in the same discussion? Nope. Simply, oh, there's lots of achievements over the last year in individual and team performances, and that's not even including the ones that will happen in the next uh, six weeks. I think that's when the deadline sort of ends. Mm. Yeah, yeah, like I say, I, I, I've got to say, I'm enjoying the Women's Rugby World Cup, but I just hate all the politicisation of it. I just hate this constant message of oppression. The only relationship that's ever existed between men and women is one of oppression. Look, Let's just enjoy the tournament for what it is, please. But let's also just make sure we enjoy the Softball World Cup. Give it its credit. Equally, if the Men's Rugby League team win, give it credit as well. I was just thinking, actually, another thing, Ben, with the... I was thinking on the way... I was at an event today and Sir Wayne Shelford or Sir Buck Shelford was in attendance. Then I was thinking of all the players over the years, Sir Wilson Winneray, Sir Michael Jones... Um, you go Sir Brian Williams, and you just think of all of the former All Blacks that have been knighted. How many rugby league players have been knighted? That's a very good question. None actually spring to mind off the oh, top of my head. Because they're blue collar. They're the other side of the tracks. They're the, the low class. life. They're the working class. That's another thing that annoys me. You'd think. You'd think if you know you see the likes of. I know he didn't accept it, but you think of Richie McCall getting off of the knighthood and we've got Sir Steve Hansen, Sir Graham Henry, 
all these other All Blacks and you kind of think, well, the Kiwis have had that one World Cup, so theoretically, why isn't it Sir Stephen Kearney, Sir Nathan Kalis who captained the team? Because it seems that the captain and the coach seem to get the accolades. Sir Benji Marshall. Oh, look, Sir Lanto Hyas scored a double in the final. I completely agree with you, and this is just what annoys me too, and this is part of what I'm saying is we still seem to have a genuine class structure, I think, when it comes to sport, when it comes to media coverage, and perhaps when it comes to bias. Cricket, rugby, netball seem to be able to do no wrong. Softball, rugby league, working man's game, other side of the tracks. Mixed martial arts now falls into that. Boxing now falls into that. No, we can't recognise and honour them. It needs to change. It needs to change. Really, really frustrating. And that's what scares me a little bit with this Women's World Cup. Because if they do win it, it's in this political environment, it's going to be really hard to differentiate What's actually legitimately fantastic and great about it? And what part of the story is just a false economy and a narrative driven by identity politics and the political environment? And that's the shame in it all. 27 minutes away from eight, we'll go to West Island next. We will catch up with Peter Fairburn. We'll talk all things... Australian sport. I can't sing, but nice you've come in with some Australian music because we've got West Island's favourite Peter Fairburn joins us on the programme. Peter, good good evening. Welcome. It's probably good afternoon over there, is it? Mate, it's late afternoon here in uh, in beautiful Queensland. As I look out the window and the sun's shining, finally a little bit of respite from the rain we've had. Um, really all over the country over the last few days and uh, we're back to being absolutely beautiful weather and uh, I'm sure your mind might wander the same as mine at 4.30 on a Tuesday afternoon as, as where uh, where the next hour or so of the afternoon might take me in terms of a knock-off drink or something of the sort. <laughs> it's funny, I used to uh, build up for the Hawaii Ironman back in my triathlon days and would spend long periods of time in Burley Heads there on the beachfront apartments and go sort of uh, enjoy both surf clubs and go down and swim in Miami pool in the morning or in the evening, ride out through Springbrook, a wonderful, wonderful part of the world. I'm very envious of your weather, Peter. Now, <laughs> um, I want to ask you a first-up question. Um, Pat Cummins, uh, I mean, uh, I, I just see this guy as a complete and utter hypocrite, nothing short of just virtue signalling, hasn't thought this argument through. Um, what's the general consensus in Australia at the moment regarding Cummins and, of course, what we've also seen with the netball? Yeah, look, it's a really interesting. It's been a massive uh, conversation starter over here. I think you know, most, most codes over here in some way, shape or form um, have touch points with organisations which... You know, people of different um, opinions could, could take offence with. I mean, we've seen even, as you guys have over the ditch, that people of Muslim faith haven't wanted to wear logos of banks or, um, you know, we've had the likes of Farwood Ahmad and uh, I think even Uzi Khawaja with the Brisbane Big Bash, um, Brisbane Heat team in, in the upcoming Big Bash are going to be sponsored by a small goods company, uh, Primo, and, and being a Muslim who doesn't eat pork, he's going to have a, a jersey without that on. And I think people are, for the most part, pretty understanding of that and understanding of, um, you know, people having some concerns on, on religious grounds and legitimate concerns based on, on strongly held faith, for example. Uh, we saw the, the Manly Seven 
uh, fiasco this year, which I think more than anything with their Pride jersey, what came out loud and clear was really poor communication within that organisation, um, leaving players feeling like they had no choice but to boycott. And, and that obviously led to a, a seven-match winless streak that ultimately cost Des Hasler his job. So no one's uh, talking, yeah, no one's underestimating the um, the impact that these types of conversations can have on athletes. But when it comes to um, you know, environmental and sustainability stances, um, yeah, I, I think there's certainly um, anecdotally less tolerance for that than there is for something like you know, a, a strong objection mm. on religious grounds. Because the reality is that um, you know so many of, of these these athletes who, who might want to um, call out you know a fossil fuel or an environmental company or something like that, um, you know they're, they're playing a huge role and, and leaving a pretty enormous footprint um, you know, through the very nature of the work they do, the amount of travel they do, um, the amount of, of lights it takes to to hold a night game and this sort of thing. So in the case of Pat Cummins, uh, the Aussie captain allegedly asked uh, Cricket Australia not to be included in any further TV commercials for Alinta Energy, the, the um, soon-to-be-departed uh, major partner of Cricket Australia, um, due, to, due to objections over their sustainability practices. And uh, there's obviously you know, some suggestion that, that his um, refusal to take part in that has played a role in that agreement coming to an end. I think people are pretty concerned for a sport like netball um, that, that they've now lost out on a $15 million mm. sponsorship that based on market value was about four or 500% higher than market value and was really um, a donation designed to save that sport. And, and because of the way that um, those players have objected to, um, you know, something that's a historical statement made by a, a now deceased, uh, member of family connected to them that that sport has missed out on a huge injection of, of mm. revenue. So look, I, I know it's a long answer. I know it's a convoluted answer to a degree. People are pretty uh, frustrated by athletes having so much say, um, particularly when you know the actual survival of their sport, such as with Netball Australia, is really coming into question. Yeah, look, I mean, I go through it. So you've got Australia itself, 58% of the global seaborne trade of coal, uh, most of it going to China, the largest um, emitters and the largest contributors to so-called global warming. Um, you know, how Australia itself, guilty of it. I mean, in my opinion, you know, if he's serious about this, Pat Cummins, just don't play for Australia because surely Australia itself is symbolic of part of the global problem. You you, you go and have a look in India, 7% of global emissions come out of India, more than happy to go and play in the IPL. I mean, this is this is the complete and utter hypocrisy that goes with so much of it. Looking at uh, Donnell Wallam, uh, the Aboriginal player, you know, if you're serious about this, you won't go to future Commonwealth Games because, let's be honest, it's Britain, it's England. They're ultimately the great oppressors, colonisation, the whole lot. I mean, this is what I don't think a lot of these athletes think about when they actually make these decisions. And what they're actually realising is, well, you guys are still going to get paid, but it's the it's the, it's the the game below international level. It's the grassroots that ultimately is affected by their decision. And look, I, I wouldn't even say in the case of netball there's even a guarantee that, that they will get paid. I, I think one of the m- most overwhelmingly uh, surprising things that's come out of the netball instance is the fact that the Australian Netball Players Association was currently in conversations with Netball Australia about a pay rise for its players. Now, I'm actually a staunch advocate for player player rights and players being um, you know b- b- being uh, looked after in terms of the fact that if, if they don't play, there's no sport to sell. But Netball Australia have had some hugely well-publicised financial challenges for a long, long time. And 
you know, we've seen in, in rugby, for example, um, you know, Wallabies and Super Rugby players have made enormous sacrifice to keep the game going and uh, reduced Wallaby match payments and, and, and really, uh, you know, all took pay cuts across the board during COVID to keep that sport going. So to hear that Netball Australia throughout this is, is pushing for a pay rise through its Players Association and then through the actions of the players, and I'm not downplaying, uh, you know, the, the potential hurt for that player involved, but we've got to look to find a solution here because a $15 million partnership for that sport over four years, that was a golden ticket to survival. Yeah. Um, you know, and I don't want to go to the early crow here, but at the same time, I think, you know, for, for netball, to be able to try and find, um, you know, a, an alternate source for that revenue is, is really unlikely. And I think as well, when you talk about, you know, Pat Cummins and hypocrisy in India and the like, I think the reality is that, um, you know, that... That could be applied across all athletes in all sports. There's mm. so many ways that they've got to be really, really careful about how strong a stance they, yeah. they want to take. I mean, ultimately, short of retirement, short of a David Pocock chaining yourself to a tractor, I don't know how you can really live uh, the values to the full extreme. Well, well I, I mean, you've only got to go and have a look at what China are doing to the minority um, Uyghur Muslims over there. And, and, you know, basically, yeah, absolutely just the worst of human rights going on but you know these people more than happy to buy goods made out of China more than happy to wear clothes made in China uh, you've only got to have a look at the foreign policy of the United States but they seem to you know yeah, pick and choose their arguments with not a lot of consistency in it look anyway I'm going to take some calls on this after 8 o'clock uh, look um, Australia clearly getting thrashed in that first T20 game by New Zealand great victory for us tonight you take on Sri Lanka um, how much psychological damage was done to this Australian cricket team? Can they bounce back? Can they win four games on the trot? Well, look, the good thing about the result against New Zealand was it actually made the rest of us here in Australia realise the competition was on. Generally, we, we focus on test cricket and you know the more premium, less uh, slap and giggle elements of cricket. So it, it actually reminded us the T20 World Cup had started. So look, great for you guys to get the monkey off your back. I think it was your, your first win significance in Australia for about 10 years. So 2011. 2011, you Pete, you can remind us of it. That's it, that's it. No, but look, in, in all seriousness, um, I was talking about a, an early crow. Well, here, here's an early crow now. Um, the earliest of early crows, Australia will not only uh, thrash Sri Lanka tonight, we will win four games on the trot. We'll be the most dangerous team heading into the quarterfinals. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I think... Clearly, there's some, some challenges in terms of finding our best 11 and getting them on the field. But at the same time, I think, um, yeah, we've got some of the most destructive cricketers in the world. And someone like a Cameron Green, who you guys haven't seen a lot of yet, he has the potential to be the best cricketer on the planet within the next two years. And, um, you yeah, know, guys like Glenn Maxwell, David Warner, um, Adam Zampa is probably the best spin bowler in, in international T20 when he gets going. And that's not even talking about Pat Cummins, Mitchell Stark. Uh, the list goes on. So, look, there's... There's definitely some disappointment about the way we started. Mm. You, you guys were fantastic. Hey, hey, Everything hey, that you needed to do, you did. That, um, that, but that, but that, we're still really confident. Pete, Pete, that was a wonderful little narrative. Have you been smoking something tonight, mate? Because that was, that was boy, that was glowing. <laughs> that was a glowing endorsement of the Australian cricket team, mate. We don't quite see it the same way over here, mate. But um, I love your confidence. Well, I think the beep machine will be getting a heavy workout over there <laughs> for all the abuse, you know, improper things that I'm not allowed to say on New Zealand Airways. But no, look, you guys are fantastic. You were really, really good. I love the selection of Finn Allen, a guy we haven't seen a lot of, and gave you the opportunity to come out and take it to our guys. The execution was outstanding. Jimmy Neesham hasn't really done that well against Australia in the past, but, but he looked really, really up for it. And then 
uh, yeah, some pretty atrocious decision making with the bat for us. So I saw the guys said afterwards. Afterwards, Mitch Marsh, uh, he, he said, "Well, what a great opportunity because now um, you know everyone's against us and we get to play the underdog role." So I thought that was a very clever uh, way to pivot to to a fresh approach. But yeah. Um, yeah, we've got faith in our team. We, we still think that we can turn it around from here. Hey, Pete, I've only got a couple of minutes. Uh, just quickly, has the Rugby League World Cup taken off yet or do we need to get to sort of a, a more serious uh, part in this competition for it to really sort of capture the imagination? Oh, look, I think it's taken off in, in ways, right? So, um, you know, we've got teams like Jamaica have captured a little bit of imagination because of the unlikely nature of them. Uh, Lebanon getting a lot of press over here with Michael Checker leading them and Guys like Adam Dewey, you know, you look at the Irish team with Luke Keary, um, you know, controlling the game for them. So there's, there's nice little elements in media. There's, there's some interesting little interviews. Um, a lot of focus on, on both the Tonga and the Samoan teams, positive for Tonga, less so for Samoa after their capitulation against the English. So, yes, there's interest. A lot of it's uh, intrinsically linked to the, the big-name players who didn't get selected for Australia or New Zealand and are playing for those smaller teams. But obviously... You know, there's a lot of excitement about when things get to that quarterfinal stage and, and really heat up. And, you know, if I say we're, we're positive and, and confident about the cricket, we're certainly not as bullish about the, the Rugby League World Cup. There's a great deal of respect for, for Tonga, for New Zealand, for England, um, and, and a real sense that this is going to be the greatest iteration of that competition and the most even with the most genuine winning chances that we've ever seen. Pete Fairbairn, I've got to say, mate, you're um, almost probably the most intelligent Australian I've ever spoken to, and um, in a very platonic way, mate. Um, you're a beautiful man. Thank you. <laughs> mate, was... I'm, I'm sure uh, you, any of your listeners who've crossed paths with me would say it's the eight years I've spent living in your beautiful country that uh, have maybe you know heavily shaped my uh, my approach and toned down some of my Aussieisms. But no, I love getting on and having a chat with, with you guys across the ditch and especially at the moment with a couple of major international tournaments and, and the Rugby World Cup. Let's not forget, um, yeah, we're taking on England in the Women's Rugby World Cup this weekend and looking forward to that one too. Yeah, well done. Hey, lovely, Pete. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Out of there, out of West Australia, Peter Fairburn uh, joining us here on the programme. It is 10 and a half minutes away from eight. I do want to have a look at the hypocrisy, the tail wagging the dog, player power, the damage it's doing um, and the fact that you go down a path, man, It's you've got to be very, very careful because very easy to start looking like a hypocrite, which I think you can say is very much the case for Pat Cummins, the Australian cricket captain. We'll look at that after eight. I'm free, free falling. I can't sing, but I'm on the radio. Six minutes away from eight. I've had a long day. I'm a little bit tired. I'm a little bit loopy. After eight o'clock, I'm going to open the lines on 0800 150 Want to get your thoughts on these athletes that somehow need to come out and do some virtue signalling and saying, hey, I stand up for this, but haven't really thought their arguments through and just end up looking like complete and utter hypocrites, but at the same time putting major sports organisations at financial risk. There are not too many major organisations in the world now where you probably, if dig deep enough, you could f- probably find some level of moral corruption. And if you want to get on top of you, you could probably protest it. You know, what Pat Cummins is doing is just utterly ridiculous. We've got Donald Wallum, this Aboriginal player in the Australian netball team who objects to a comment made by a mining magnet 40 years ago. Question I have for her, would she attend a Commonwealth Games? 
headed up by King Charles and formerly Queen Elizabeth. You know, the country, the region that brought colonisation to Australia in the first place. A symbol of oppression. Where does it all stop? Sort of reminds me of the vegan who walks around in leather shoes. That after eight. Right, it is eight o'clock. Telephone numbers 0800 150811. Mark Watson with you. Ben Francis alongside of me. Let's see if we can get a bit of talk here. Chance to put the boot into the Australians. I've done plenty of putting the boot into the Players Association here in New Zealand in regards to the tail wagging the dog. Players going on sabbatical, threatening the organisation that they don't want to play for the All Blacks and lest they can disappear off to Japan and make a small fortune or if in fact they don't get paid more money they might end up going overseas. Meanwhile, the provincial unions in this country are struggling financially and the only people that seem to be benefiting in all of this and seem to be running the show are an exclusive group of players. Now, a similar thing or a different thing is happening in Australia. We've got Pat Cummins, the captain of the Australian cricket team, who's just basically doing a whole lot of virtue, virtue signalling. Um, basically standing up and refusing to endorse Cricket Australia's major sponsor, Alinta Energy, arguing that they're responsible to a degree for global warming. This comes from a guy, it's been well reported, who drives around in the Land Rover and flies first class and is more than happy to go and play for millions of dollars in India, a country that is actually responsible for 7% of global emissions, a country that has a terrible class structure in place where certain what they call castes in society are considered to be almost subhuman, probably more than happy to wear Chinese clothes, even though the Uyghur minority, the Muslims in China, well, Extermination might be too strong a word, but certainly racial cleansing has been employed by the Chinese government. The indigenous player in the netball team, Danelle Wallums, her stance on this mining company has just cost Netball Australia a $15 million sponsor. This is an organisation that was $7 million in debt. And her protest goes back to one of the original owners of Hancock Prospecting, who 40 years ago said some pretty derogatory things towards Aboriginals. But times have changed, times have moved on. Nothing's perfect in this world. But if you want to find moral corruption with most major organisations, you can find it these days. I wonder whether Donnell Wallen would go and play at a Commonwealth Games. After all, let's be honest, the Commonwealth, the royal family, aristocracy, well, that is a symbol of oppression. The great oppressors, colonisation. Donnell Wallen's would she by anything made in China. She understands the struggles of the ethnic minority. Does she refuse to buy Chinese goods to support the Uyghur minority 
in China. Oh eight hundred one five zero eight double one. Players now telling the marketing departments what they should do. Go woke, go broke. I don't think that's necessarily the case around Donnell Wallum and the netball team. There's a little bit more substance in her protest versus that of Pat Cummins. And I see Aussie cricket fans have absolutely savaged him. And they've turned on him. Just get on and play the damn game. More than happy to take the paycheck though, aren't you? And you'll still get paid no matter what. But grassroots, well, they might ultimately be the one that ends up suffering because of the stance you took, Pat. Where do you sit with this? 0800 Did you know Australia are responsible for 58% of the global seaborne trade of coal, so exporting of coal? Most of it goes to China. Highest left in of greenhouse gases come out of China. If he's genuine and true to his belief system, would he not just boycott plane for Australia completely after all? It is Australia who continues to still export coal. Or does that... Yeah, that, yeah, but that might affect him, though. That might affect his pay packet. That might affect his lifestyle. Oh eight hundred one five zero eight double one is the number on this one. We saw a situation a couple of weeks ago here where I think it was the ASB Bank came out. And again, it was just virtue signalling. It was just to try and get some publicity and look, look like they've got a social conscience. They're never going to carry through with it threatening that they'd pull their sponsorship from the ASB Men's and Women's Tennis Classics here in Auckland in January if Russian or certain Eastern European countries affiliated with Putin and Russia had players in attendance Deliberately leaked to the media. We're never going to see it through. All about just grabbing a headline. Oh eight hundred one five oh eight double one. You know the vegan who walks around in leather shoes or has the leather lounge suite. Complete and utter hypocrisy. All of these social warriors, but more than happy to drink. Well, I'll argue that drinking does more damage in society than probably any other product on the market, any other excess available to mankind. You can text us here on double eight double three. 
see, the danger with all of this is that where does it end? What companies are that squeaky clean that have that amount of money to sponsor major sporting organisations globally? All of them, at some point in time, have some level of moral corruption. Some might have even been guilty of illegal practices in the past. But I think the greatest protest Pat Cummins could make is refuse a salary from Cricket Australia and donate it to charity. Donate it to an organisation or to a group who are continually looking to try and lobby governments around the world in terms of putting policy in place which reduces greenhouse gases and greenhouse emissions. Oh eight hundred one five zero eight double one. Ben, have you got a theory on this? I know you're reading it at the moment. Is you busy sort of putting some stuff up on social media there? Uh, I sort of do, but it's a bit of a similar one. It's for me. We all know that majority of people are probably struggling at the moment, not just here, but around the world. It's this cost of living crisis, amongst other things, and it can be attributed to a certain number of aspects, but. I don't like how we're continually forced down our throats, how we need to keep helping, keep helping. But then I'm kind of like, but what about these people in these more privileged positions? Shouldn't they be the ones helping? Shouldn't they be the ones that are kind of doing doing things for the society? And if it, like you said, if it means that much, means that much to you, then donate your money. Like it's as simple as that. Well, I have arguments with these, you know, people that argue that the rich should pay more tax. And I'm like, well, what do you define as rich? And often the people I'm talking to, you know, might fall into what a lot of people would consider to be middle class. But to the person who has nothing, they are rich. But it's funny, those that often preach and shout the loudest, it's everybody else should be paying, but not them. Oh, no, I'm not talking about us. We're not rich enough. I mean, I'm talking about the rich rich. And you go, well, hang on a minute. Or we should increase the tax rate. It's like, well... Rather than waiting for it to be come through and become legislated, why don't you just donate a large chunk of your own savings, sell part of your house, downsize and give it if you really believe in it? But the reality is they don't. They want everybody else to do it. It's like the person that says, let's teach religion in schools. You go, well, what religion? Well, of course, my religion. Oh, right, your religion. You know, it, it, uh, uh, this environment we live in at the moment, told what to say, told what to think, a minority dictating to everybody else their belief system, telling everyone to be kind until you challenge them, and then they're just pure nasty and vitriolic. 0800 is the number.
Telephone number 0800 150 811 is the number you can text us here on 8833. Ben, just having a look at the controversies around Enios these days, a sponsor of the All Blacks, um, another one of these petroleum companies that um, have been caught out at the far end of those who are seen as not playing their part in climate change mitigation. Don't let a lot of data out. You've got Ultrad, and you've only got to Google them. They're under basically being prosecuted by the French government at the moment for a high level of corruption. It's amazing how New Zealand rugby have gone very quiet on this, but more than happy to, you know, take other political stances, which is going to betray them in a good light. I can't watch the All Blacks anymore, Watto. I'm sorry. No, that's right. I mean, they're burning down the planet, aren't they? I watched the Black Ferns on Saturday night and said. Wow, that's right. But no, it's... um, I'm just trying to Google a little bit on Ultrad and, yeah, not a particularly nice company. In fact... Shall we boycott the next Rugby World Cup as well, which is in France? Well, uh, um, I'll just read you a little bit on... Ultrad, the All Black sponsor, uh, the Western Force, so this is the Perth-based franchise, were envy of Australian rugby earlier this year when headlines trumpeted a multi-million dollar sponsorship deal with French construction behemoth Ultrad. It was similarly good for New Zealand rugby in August 2021 when they signed a six-year deal giving the French company jersey sponsorship rights for the All Blacks, Black Ferns, Māori All Blacks, All Black Sevens, Black Ferns Sevens and the New Zealand Under-20 teams. How many All Black teams do we have now? That's why we franchise most of them. In the financially stressed post-COVID world in which Australia's largest super rugby franchise, the Waratahs, had not been able to attract a front of jersey deal or of sufficient value, the Force's four-year agreement, including player swaps and regular games in France, appeared a triumph. Eight months on, there is doubt over whether it will see a second season. As Moed Altrad, the eccentric billionaire, founder of his um, company, awaits judgment on bribery charges. Goes on to say, the Western Force declined to comment on the matter, but will be watching with interest when the Paris Criminal Court hands down its verdict in December. The force are a minor bystanders in the story. The case could have larger implications for New Zealand rugby, which last year signed a six-year, $120 million deal with Ultrad, also with player agreements and fixtures in Montpellier thrown in. It also threatens the reputation legacy of Bernard Laporte, the vice chairman of World Rugby, a Sanzar ally, and according to World Rugby magazine, the most influential figure in the sport this year. Laporte stood trial for a range of corruption charges, including bribery, breach of trust, misuse of corporate assets, and concealment of that misuse. Both men designed, denied all charges. So, if the players have any sort of um, morality about them and are into virtue signalling, the Players Association to stand up to New Zealand rugby and say, how dare you have Ultrad? There's a major sponsor. How dare you have any os? But we still want to get paid the same. And I want to grab a headline. And I want to show that 
I have a conscience in that I'm not just a rugby player, but I'm an environmental warrior. I mean, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. 0800 150 811. The previous All Black sponsor too, AIA, they basically were responsible for the global financial meltdown in 2008, if you read their history as well. It's amazing how New Zealand rugby go very quiet on these issues. The Players Association go really quiet on this sort of stuff. Just hope that it goes away because they don't want it somehow infiltrating or being infiltrated or being picked up here or catching on here in New Zealand. And one player decided to take a stance and put enough political pressure on or having the media turn that they have no other option than to get out. But at the same time, these same organisations that hope a player doesn't stand up and take the moral high ground are more than happy to take the moral high ground on a whole lot of other issues that are going to see them be held in high regard. And I think the politicisation of women's rugby is case in point at the moment. I think the diversity issue has been one that sports organisations have absolutely leveraged to the max. Rightly so. But it becomes a bit hypocritical when you then turn a blind eye to other ethical issues because ultimately it affects your bottom line. Twenty-three minutes after eight. Oh eight hundred one five zero eight double one is the number. Stephen Harris on the program next. We are going to talk a little bit of women's rugby. We had the defence first internet defence international defence rugby competition taking place in New Zealand, running alongside the women's World Cup. The men men's defence forces have been doing this for a long time around the world. They've had a defence force rugby World Cup immediately following the staging of the men's World Cup in the host nation, but it's the first time the women have done it been a wonderful tournament. The final was played today between New Zealand and France. We will get an update from Stephen Harris. We will look back and reflect on that tournament. Some very good players involved, some very good rugby indeed, good crowds and a wonderful advertisement for the women's game. 23 and a half minutes after eight. Ben, I should stop ruining your wonderful music choices by trying to even remotely sing over the top of them. How dare you bastardise one of the great Rolling Stone songs. What you want. Yeah. Hey, we just had a text come in from Peter Mick. I'm not sure that's his real name because I've Googled his number and something else comes up. But anyway, we won't go there. Because I'm frustrated with you, confusing too many issues. So if I understand you, it would be logical that we still had cigarette advertising. If athletes don't like the banner you want them to stand under, they can quit. Well, cigarette advertising was legislated by the government 
and I think most people probably agreed with it. So it became government policy. But I'm not a big believer in individuals morally policing everybody else believed on their own belief system. Otherwise, society would fall down because what offends you doesn't necessarily offend me and where does it all stop? If you're in an organisation and the income stream is coming from sponsors and you don't believe in that organisation and think that somehow they're morally corrupt, absolutely. Step aside. Don't take payment. But don't bring the whole organisation into disrepute. I don't believe in prohibition. And where does it all stop, Peter? It's a lot of things that annoy me. You imagine going to 33 different All Blacks and saying, what do you stand up for morally? Taking each one of them and then making sure that whoever sponsors the All Blacks, all income streams that come in, don't encroach or don't breach any of those 33 individual point of views. Good luck. Professionalism sport will fall over in a heartbeat. As far as I'm concerned, on this issue, people like Pat Cummins are absolute morons, complete and utter hypocrites. And rather than playing cricket for Australia, go and tie yourself to a tree somewhere and get your message out that way. Rather than playing under the floodlights, the carbon footprint, flying first class around the world, or going and playing in the IPL in India, where the level of corruption is beyond belief, 7% of the global emissions come out of India, they've got a class structure where the lowest form within that class system are basically considered to be subhuman. Oh, but that's okay, isn't it, Pat? You can somehow justify that one. But let's go and wear all our products that are made in China, our whiteware that's made in China, even though we've got racial cleansing of the Uyghur minority over there, suppression of freedom of speech. But that's okay. I can find a way of justifying that because I like my Chinese-made products. I like lounging around in my spa pool made in China. And want my car, yeah, the Land Rover that I drive, yeah, look, it is a bit of a gas guzzler, but, you know, next year I was planning on going to electric. And to these... Australian netball players who want to hold a company to ransom for a terrible comments made 40 years ago. Well, pull out of the next Commonwealth Games because the Commonwealth is a symbol of oppression. 
And so, Peter, yes, there is no place for individuals within major sporting organisations at the highest level to be telling the marketing departments what to do and putting entire organisations at risk. The All Blacks sponsorship would fall out tomorrow based on that. You know, I'm sure if we looked into where the profits of our major banks in this country, where those profits offshore went, I'm pretty sure if we dug deep enough, we could find some skullduggery there. If you're in an organisation, you don't like the national sponsors, don't play for the damn team. Pat Cummins, don't play for Australia. Australia are terribly perceived by the rest of the world in terms of exporting of coal to China. 0800 is the number. And text us here on 8833. Think this argument through, people. It's like the freedom of speech. Let's legislate language. Well, who decides what's offensive? You can't offend anybody. But in order to think, you need to be prepared to offend. I think that was the words of the great... Toronto professor Jordan Peterson. Hundred people in a room. But you're not allowed to offend anybody. Good luck with that. Let's talk some rugby. The first ever international defence rugby championship has been played in Auckland over the last two and a half weeks. Eight countries, seven teams in all, with Vanuatu and Papua New Guinea forming a combined team. This is the first time it's happened. The Men's Defence Force Rugby World Cup has been going for some time now. And with the rise of women's rugby and its popularity, it seems timely that the first edition has been played in New Zealand, the host nation for the Women's Rugby World Cup. And the finals were played today. Third and fourth was played between Australia and Fiji, a very good Fijian team by all accounts. And the final in front of a very big crowd was between France and New Zealand, the New Zealand team known as the Defence Ferns. One of the commentators was Stephen Harris. He joins us on the programme. Steve, good evening. Welcome. Yeah, good evening. What I, good evening to your listeners. What did you make of the standard of women's rugby at a defence force level over the last two and a half weeks? Were you impressed by the quality of rugby you saw? Yeah, very much so, Mark, and it's got better. As you could see, these teams started gathering combinations. I think we went in a little bit unsure what to expect, but um, you know, like most things, as you get to the, the semi-final, the pointy end of the season, the cream does rise to the top. Yeah, uh, Stephen, I mean, um, uh, you know, we have seen a, a big rise in women's rugby, um, but I think from what I've heard, the surprise package very much Fiji here, um, the way in which they played the game, and Perhaps we're a little unlucky not to make it all the way through to the final. Oh, I've, I've got to agree with you. And interestingly enough, I've actually just received a, a, a message from a good friend who's in the military in, in Fiji, and and he was um, he's just actually messaged me and, and said, "Listen, this is only the, only the beginning. They've only really started a real focus on women's rugby." in Fiji in the last couple of years or so, and uh, I think one thing that we we've always known like uh, the men players, gee, there's some really good athletes running around. And, boy, 
they're the sort of team with a little bit more work under their belt across the board. They're capable of scoring tries from anywhere on the paddock and uh, with the athletes that they've got, boy, look out moving forward. Uh, yeah, well, I remember seeing Fiji in 2016 at the Sevens in Rio and weren't particularly flash and then almost upset us, didn't they, five years later in Tokyo in that semi-final and you go and have a look at Fiji Times and so many of the articles are about the rise of Fiji and women's rugby and uh, they do place a lot of emphasis particularly on the military. Um but it's it's a wonderful career path, isn't it, the Defence Forces? Because here you can, you're basically getting paid, and a big part of it uh, is extracurricular activities, which clearly includes sport. And for some of the players that we've seen in action over the last two and a half weeks, it'll be the highest level they'll play. For others, it's a stepping stone to higher honours, and some have already gone to higher honours. Oh, listen, ab- ab- absolutely. And there were some quality players running around, and this is unknown quality we're talking about. You know, we were fortunate enough to have um, uh, Blues Super Rugby coach Willie Walker in, I think, in the second round that he popped along to have a look. And I know talking to him, once the day round robin had had finished, he said, boy, there's some talent running around and uh, I'll definitely be tracking this talent to see exactly where it goes. And the same can be said for the likes of of, of Fiji as as well. Listen, if there's any sort of opportunities for these young ladies, I know that... uh, Women's uh, Rugby or the Drua had a, a females professional team running around in this year's um, competition with the Australian side. So there's opportunities uh, for these young ladies to progress their careers, not just in the mili- while being in the military, but also playing professionally as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's um, and Sir Buck Shelford, Sir Wayne Shelford in attendance today and uh, earlier in the week as well. Let's talk about firstly. The, well, let's talk about the final this afternoon because it was France up against New Zealand in the first round these two teams had met and it was the defence who had won that 24 points to 10. This was always going to be close and in the finish it was France who came out victorious with um, a 9-8 victory, uh, Steve. And it's fair to say that perhaps New Zealand were outcoached, outfought. Yeah, I'd have to agree totally with you. You know, if you if you look at uh, this French team, their set pieces were were very good. I think they were stronger in this area whilst they were penalised a lot in the game um, by by the official. Now, this could be something as simple as not obviously not speaking English, not getting the getting the the message directly from the official. I thought they were dominant in those particular areas, and they played the game in the right part of the field. But they also defended. Really, really well. In fact, the last uh, the last two games, whilst they didn't score a try in their last two games, including the semi final, they showed defensively they are a very good team. Mm, yeah, really well led to the French, weren't they? Today, um, some wonderful names. Always good when you when you run through the French names that make up the side. But really, really, really well read indeed. And. Um, a disappointment, I guess, from the defence ferns, but some standout players, the likes of Leah Miles, I think. The midfield combination of Melania, Kens, Wairauka, Greg, um, I think it, most people felt that both these players would look comfortable in any FPC side, any Super Rugby side in New Zealand. Oh, very, very much so. Of course, Liam Miles um, from the Otago Spirit picking up a super contract with the uh, South Island-based uh, franchise. I thought she was probably close to New Zealand's player of the tournament. She never dropped the standards, was pretty much good throughout and of course, we we often spoke about Melania Kins and Wairaka Greg 
in in the midfield. Greg a little bit quiet today, and we didn't see a lot of either of those players. And I, I, I sense that was really the, the the disappointment. I don't think they ever got an opportunity to get into the game simply because a very good French pack built around their tight head prop, uh, Labib, their lock, Gasparo and Galatel, who seem to be the cornerstone of that pack, just never let those uh, New Zealand forwards get into a comfortable position. Yeah, fascinating too, because it was really out wide is probably where the real strength had been of this defence ferns, and we, we sort of felt that Perhaps they lacked a little bit of X-factor France and their best chance was to keep it tight, play down those narrow channels and that's exactly what they did do. And you felt that the longer this game went without New Zealand being able to score points, the ascendancy was always going to go and the momentum was always going to go with the French. Oh, very much so. And, you know, a player that we we, we highlighted in the, in, the, in the French team who looked quality was Marie Gorgage and she just played the game of her life life today and got two real vital turnovers right at the end of the game but just did everything right where we thought one of the stars of the tournament would, would be uh, Ruthie Malafangi um, or Tootsie as they basically called her um, she looked like a, a star in the making and we thought she would be the star of the tournament but to be honest she only had a couple of touches early in the game and we never saw her again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Emma Kudia, the French first five, controlled things nicely. Hayley Hutana, who's been a real star throughout this competition, um, at key times today, uh, look, might be a bit harsh, but at times maybe went missing. Yeah, I, listen, I'd have to say if there was one probably disappointment with, with Hayley, you know, very experienced uh, player at FPC level, I just thought at some time she didn't get that midfield involved and was, you know, always seemed to be throwing the ball wide and hitting and hoping, hoping that they would would hit Malangafangi out wide, and it, it it just really didn't didn't happen for them. We I think she needed to be a little bit more creative, needed to run a little bit more, and I think that was really her time as a senior player to stand up. Mm, yeah, we should emphasise too just how big the French forces are. It's a combination of Army, Navy and Air Force. And if you saw the celebrations after having beaten the defence ferns and a lot of these players play professionally in France, you could see just what it meant. You could see the prestige in this and just how much this tournament is going to grow four years from now and beyond. Oh, listen, very much so. And these teams will get better now that they've... They've actually seen the standard, you know, and you could see gradual improvement with all of these sides. I mean, to say the, the third and fourth playoff game between Australia and Fiji, you know, classic example, where on the day one of this tournament, Fiji, I think, put 60-odd points on Australia. Yeah, 65-5 uh, in the first round. Fiji beat Australia. I just want to emphasise this to people. Fiji, this is their armed services, this is their defence force, beat the Australian defence forces 65-5, but that wasn't the case today in that third or fourth playoff. No, not not at all. Once again, Australia started well enough. It was two and pro. In fact, there was actually a really awesome game uh, to to call Mark. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, once again, Fiji with these wonderful athletes that they can bring off the bench onto the field that can break open a game from anywhere in the paddock. I think was was the difference. You know, when you can when you can bring the likes of a, a Lavinia Tinai off the bench and. Uh, Boy, these are all really good runners. Anna Maria Butti, 
these are very, very good players. And that's the go with the ones that, that they've already got on the field. I thought Nabura, the centre was good. Namuse, the captain on the right wing. And uh, um, uh, Wakana at the fullback. Boy, threats from anywhere on the pattern. Mm. Yeah, I, I just want to emphasise too for New Zealand uh, sports fans listening to this, you won't be familiar with these names, but I, I just want people take a note of these names. Bridget Lake, Ricky Rawley, Michelle Bro, Caroline Seo. Ruthie Mullanathangi, or just simply known as Toots, as you've mentioned, the likes of Clementine Varea, it's surely only a matter of time before we see these players at a much, much higher level and becoming familiar names to lovers of rugby here in New Zealand. I think this was the perfect stepping stone for them. I think this was a wonderful audition. And if Leah Miles, the flanker, can be named a Targo Female Rugby Player of the Year and pick up a super contract, then those names that we've mentioned and include uh, at the backs the likes of Melania, Ken, to Myrauka, Greg, uh, every reason why they can't do the same. Oh, very much so. I'm going to throw one other name in there because she was good every time she came off the bench with Phoenix Lytham. Um, boy, you know, real solid midfielder, always busted the line, was always a threat. And uh, yeah, Melania Ken's at 19 years old. Listen, if you don't see her in a super rugby team, I think you'll probably see her in an NRL team, women's NRL team moving forward. Yeah, looked very much like Big Storm and Norman Berryman and the way she did play too, Phoenix Lytton. Yeah, I, I wonder if they had their time again. We know how good the midfield combination of Melania, Kenza, Myralko, uh, Greg were, but I wonder, just looking at this game, whether you know they might have perhaps started with Phoenix Lytton at second 5-8, Wairakia Greg on the outside because Lytton, she just got yards, didn't she? She just got go forward like no other player today, but she really only came on with, what, about 20 minutes remaining. Oh, very much so. And, you know, if you can imagine somebody like Melania Kens just running off her shoulder or even Wairakia Greg or even with the like of Tootsie, um, Lucy Malangafangi sort of, sniffing around, boy, I think they would have been much more of a threat as opposed to, to looking for the wide path all the time. Stephen Harris, uh, been a privilege and a pleasure having you on the programme, my good man. Lovely to catch up and lovely to reflect on what has been a very good tournament, the International Defence Rugby Competition. Thank you. Thank you, What I really appreciate it, enjoyed it. Yeah, there you go. And I do have to say, uh, might be a bit tough there on... Um, Hayley Hutana, the first five, but what a player she is. I want to emphasise that. Um, nothing in this game today, and I guess we're just sort of grasping at straws a little bit in terms of critiquing both sides. But, boy, there's some talent to burn in women's rugby in this country, and the French absolutely ecstatic winning the Defence Force Rugby World Championship. I do encourage young people out there listening or parents that might be listening to this and kids maybe just a little bit lost, not sure what they want to do. Uh, speaking to a number of players, why they got into the defence forces. They just wanted a bit of discipline. They wanted a career. Um, and let's be honest, you're not paid just to play rugby, but sport is a big part of it. And you can go to a pretty high level and still receive an income. So do check out the defence forces. 12 minutes away from 9 o'clock. I'd imagine I'll probably have a few world-class sports people being offended by the fact that I'm promoting the Defence Forces and might start boycotting the station. (laughs) 11 minutes away from nine. 
It is seven minutes away from nine o'clock. Okay, Ben Francis, what are we doing after nine o'clock? Who are we talking to? I do know, but I'd like you to tell everybody. You'd like me? Oh, uh, thank you very much for the honour, mate. Uh, Coming up just after nine o'clock, we've got uh, Andy Murray, uh, football journalist out of the UK. Uh, He's done work for the 442 magazine. Of course, lots of big news in... uh, over in football in England over the last week, you saw lots of the many of the bottom place sides, uh, Nottingham Forest beating your Liverpool, your mug Liverpool. Mm. Uh, Leicester also getting a win. Uh, they all seem to win, but Stephen Gerrard getting the sack. And, of course, uh, tomorrow morning, New Zealand time, we've got a couple of big Champions League games on, so they've got that to look forward to as well. And then around 9.30, Andrew McGlashan from ESPN Crick Info discussed some things going on at the Cricket World Cup at the moment. Should be a lot of fun. Yeah, no, looking forward to it. Always enjoy talking some English Premier League football, some Champions League football. Look, if you do want to have a comment, do want to have your say, we will keep the lines open right through to 11 o'clock on 0800 150 You can text us here on 8833. Um, we can talk about Mark Talia being called up into the All Blacks. Oh, I'm not convinced on Mark Talia. I, I'm not sure what the fascination is. I think he's a good solid winger. Um, I still like a player like a Sean Stevenson. I think he can just do more. And I'm an Auckland guy. I'm a Blues guy. I'm not going to pretend I'm not. Um, I think Lamb offers a little bit more. Just my opinion. After nine, maybe you want to have your say on 0800-150-811 is the number. Uh, Australia take on Sri Lanka. We will look at that a little bit later on tonight, around about 10.30. Must win game for the Australians. Will they bounce back? Will they do a demolition on the Sri Lankans? Or do the Sri Lankans just come out, go back to the days of Sankakara, just go after Cummings, just put a little bit of doubt in the Australian heads and see if they can crumble. Not going to beat Australia playing conservatively, though. Uh, just looking at some of those Champions League fixtures tomorrow, Manchester City away to Borussia Dortmund, Chelsea away to Salzburg, Celtic at home to Shakhtar Donetsk, cannot qualify for the stage of 16. And then following day, looking forward to this one, my mob, Liverpool playing in the Netherlands, playing up against Ajax, Napoli, up against Rangers. There'll be a lot of Liverpool fans hoping that Rangers can somehow, somehow do the impossible, beat Napoli or at least force the draw. Can't see that happening. Napoli have been very, very good in this campaign. So plenty of sport to come throughout the night here on SENZ as we approach four minutes to nine o'clock. There you go, another good song. Another good song from Pablo Nutini. Ben Francis... Best music taste on the station. Best sound bed that you'll get throughout the day. I must admit, a little bit flat tonight. I'm not seeing the new ball particularly well. If I was out at Lord's, Ben, I would probably be back in the pavilion. I think I would have been swinging and missing outside off stump. I need to find my mojo. I need to be able to come out and hit beach balls, big fella. Still would have scored more than Grant Elliott during his test career. Well, that's a bit tough on Grant. That's a bit tough on Grant. Don't be like that. Don't be like that. I like Grant. So do I. I've that's why. Show with Grant. <laughs> oh, it's just easy. Is Andy Murray our guest up next? Is he a Liverpool fan? 
Shall we ask him? All things football. Andy, good evening. Welcome. Good morning. Good morning. Yes, good evening. Good morning. Uh, whatever it is where you are. Are you a Liverpool fan? Uh, yeah, I'd say lapsed, lapsed Liverpool fan. Long story, which I won't bore you, which I won't bore you with. Mainly about the Super League. Okay, now good man, good man. Um, is there a little bit of infighting in Liverpool at the moment? There seems to be um, various stories coming out that perhaps the likes of Henderson, Van Dyke, possibly have had a bit of a falling out with Jurgen Klopp, and maybe for the first time in his seven-year tenure at Liverpool, there are just a few chinks in the armour. Yeah, I mean, you, I think you can see that something isn't quite right um, there this season, whether it's uh, a hangover of playing, uh, you know, 60,000 games or however many it was uh, last season in uh, in getting to, you know, FA Cup, League Cup, Champions League final and um, going close, well, very close, I suppose, in the league. Um, so I, I guess uh, with hindsight, um you may have expected uh, something like uh, the slow start to to this season, but uh, it's been sort of going on so long now that that you wonder uh, if there is something something else behind the behind the scenes. You know, James Milner and Van Dyke had a little bit of a, a set to it at Old Trafford in the defeat to Manchester United a couple of months ago. Um, so you know, it, it, look. Klopp has obviously done an incredible job with the club, turned it, turned things around from from when he when he took over in December 2015, I think it was, uh, maybe a couple of months earlier than that. Um, but uh, you know, managers uh, managers how they manage, uh, they kind of need constant refreshing. And this Liverpool team, as much as Klopp has tried not to, especially with the signings he's made this summer. Um, uh, you know, it is started. They are starting to age out um, at the same time. You know, Henderson, uh, Van Dijk, similar ages. Fabinho's doing pretty poor this season. Also, a similar age. Uh, Thiago is great when fit, but not fit enough. Uh, similar age uh, for for him as well. Sort of Rob, uh, Andy Robertson is um, is reaching that age now as well. So, you know, I think it's kind of a combination of, of, of factors. And look, obviously, when you're eighth in the league or uh, wherever it is that they are um, and things aren't quite working, then that's when any kind of chink of uh, chink in the armour is going to be going to be magnified. Mm. How much damage to the reputation of Steven Gerrard with his sacking or Aston Villa? Or is that just part and parcel of being a manager and no one's immune? Yeah, um, look, Villa, especially this season, um, weren't great. Um, I know a couple of uh, Villa fans and um, uh, I'm in uh, regular contact with um, with a guy called Matt Hendrick who works for one of the local papers in Birmingham. Um, and certainly this season, things things haven't been haven't been good there. I mean, I. He will get another job. Um, you know, there's no, there's no doubt, uh, doubt about that. Probably because of who he is, um, as much as anything. Um, and you know, obviously, he did a really good job with uh, with Rangers. Um, but uh, he'll have to, he'll have to choose his next job very carefully. Uh, I think. Um, you know, brought in as kind of. Um, uh, I don't think Villa fans were necessarily too happy with uh, him replacing Dean Smith. Uh, Smith had 
sort of had obviously done an incredible job with uh, with Villa, getting them promoted, keeping me in, in the league. And it had been a slow start to last season, but um, he, uh, I think there was a, there was a feeling among sections of the fan base that they maybe pulled the trigger a little bit too soon uh, and that meant that when there was going to be the first sign of a bad run under Gerard, he was going to come under a bit of pressure basically because of what uh, what had come for him um, they haven't been great uh, this uh, this season um, I watched them against uh, against Fulham um, uh, so I think that was Thursday, last Thursday uh, and they were abject frankly um you know if ever it was the performance of a team that uh had either lost faith in the in the manager or the managers had had no no ideas left to to try and get something out of the team um that was it uh he has been unlucky with injuries you know two of his marquee signings uh this this summer bubakar kamara an excellent defensive midfielder uh and diego carlos um who has been superb for the Sevilla for a number of seasons um, now, uh, both long-term injured. And I think his plan was to sort of build the team uh, around around those two. I mean, that's why he you know, he stripped Tyrone Ming for the captaincy uh, at the start of the season, basically because he didn't think that Mings was going to get anywhere near the team. And then you kind of lose two big defensive players. And then all of a sudden Mings is back in playing regularly. You know, it's just, it's hard it's hard to kind of get over get over that really. Um, so you know, Villa are obviously a, a big club. Uh, it's probably as big a job as uh, Gerard could have could have got have it after after coming in from Rangers. So I think um, he'll need to choose his next job fairly carefully, a little bit like uh, Frank Lampard at, uh, at Everton, perhaps. You know, maybe start uh, from a little bit of a lower a lower base. Um, you know, I, I never, I've never been fully sold on Gerard as a manager. There are uh, there are parallels, I think, with uh, with Graham Sinness in terms of character of how they were as a player, and whether he can translate that, you know, excellence that he constantly showed, uh, and to be able to understand, you know, mortals, if you like, of uh, of professional footballers who can't do what he uh, he could do uh, you know that kind of inspiration was what mm. he what he fed off um and you know even even under benitez at uh, at liverpool benitez took a long time to really trust gerard in the middle of the park i wonder if that tactical analytical brain uh is is there you know it was a good move from him to to take uh, gary McAllister with him to uh to aston villa he's very astute in that regard and uh, neil critchley who was um uh, on the Liverpool coaching staff uh, and did a really good job at Blackpool actually um, uh, as as a manager went back to to be a first team coach under Gerard at, at Villa and you know still it hasn't worked out so um, so yeah next next job important I think for for Gerard not uh, not sort of cashed in all his credit just yet but but um, we'll need to be astute in uh, wherever he goes next. And Aston Villa have appointed Unai Emery, former uh, former Arsenal manager, of course, and um, has just left Spanish club Villarreal. So he has that responsibility now of certainly keeping Aston Villa well away from relegation and then looking to try and build on that and probably get back to the sort of the season they had when Jack Grealish was arguably their sort of franchise player. And you can sort of say that the day Grealish left, Aston Villa started to go downhill. Uh, yeah, you could you could well do. I mean, uh, you know, anybody with that sort of 
cachet in the in the club. You know, the, the team was built around Grealish to to get the to get the best out of him, um, and he certainly he certainly delivered. Um, you know, whether as sort of the left winger cutting inside to sort of go wherever he fancied, or or as a genuine number ten behind behind a centre forward behind a centre forward. Um, they were always going to struggle to um, to replace Grealish. Um, you know, regardless of the amount of money, you know, 100 million is obviously a lot of money. There's no way that you're going to be able to to attract the one player who means as much to the fan base who can deliver enough in a, in an individual sense as Grealish because you're not going to be able to attract that type that type of player if you're Aston Villa. So they went about it in the right way of trying to you know bring in you know three or four new players, but it does take time for for that amount of change to to gel and um, knit together. Um, Emery has a history of. Uh, being an excellent, a really excellent cup manager, um, you know he's reached five Champions League semi-finals in the past nine seasons uh, and uh, reached the last four with Villarreal um, last season, knocking out Juventus and Bayern Munich. You know that's that's an excellent record, um, but it hasn't always been, it hasn't always delivered in the league, um, with the exception of PSG, and you know that's PSG, and you know that. Winning the league, winning you know Liga with PSG, it almost doesn't count um, because of the you know the riches that they have. Um, but he uh, he, in total contrast to um, to Gerard, has a really uh, astute tactical brain. He absolutely he's an obsessive when it comes to tactics and video analysis. Um, when he was at Valencia, um, sort of a, a, about a decade or so ago. Uh, the uh, Valencia winner, winger Joaquin, famously uh, said, "We watched so many videos, I ran out of popcorn." Um, uh, so I don't, I don't think he necessarily uh, likes the video analysis, but um, Villa's players should certainly uh, steal themselves for that, and they will definitely be well prepared uh, for for games now and know exactly what their jobs uh, are and what's expected of them. Is Eddie Howe the most underrated manager in English Premier League football? Has done a remarkable job since coming in and turning the fortunes of Newcastle around. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, look, obviously there is a caveat of the of of the money. Um, as much as Howe would try to is trying to hide behind that, um, you can't get get away from it. He's right when he says that you know they've not signed you know all all of the. Um, uh, all of the talk was, you know, oh, we're going to sign Mbappe, Neymar, and and whatever from from the Newcastle fan base. So obviously they've not done they've not done that, unsurprisingly. Um, but uh, they have spent they have spent big, you know, and no team has spent more in a calendar year than Newcastle have in 2022. So that has undoubtedly helped. Uh, but uh, how has turns the kind of the atmosphere I suppose of the club uh, around the players he's bought have fitted into his system Bruno Guimaraes uh, the midfield Brazilian midfielder from Lyon has been absolutely superb for them um, and has really kind of injected a box-to-box dynamism in the, in the middle of midfield that just wasn't there under sort of John Joe Shelby and it allows um, Sean Longstaff who is you know functional but good but you know good at what he does defensive midfielder to do what he does and just break up play in front of the back four and distribute it fairly 
fairly simply. Um, you know, what, what he has done with players like Joe Linton, you know, misfiring uh, centre forwards who, you, you know, uh, could barely find his backside with both hands um, under, uh, uh, under, under Steve Bruce is now a, you know, another, another midfielder capable of running box to box um, and has really excelled in a deeper position. Uh, Miguel Almiron this season is a revelation um, compared with, um, uh, compared with uh, last season, you know, talking about Grealish earlier, Grealish over the summer seat, over the, the close season was digging uh, Almiron out for being one of the worst players in, in the Premier League. And now he's, you know, he's scored something like uh, four in his last five or something or, or, or so he's, he's absolutely on fire. Uh, so, you know, that kind of coaching uh, is obviously playing, paying dividends to the players that were already there and how he's making them, making them play better. You know, they've got the best defence in the league. Kieran Trippier, another really excellent, astute signing, has been superb for them. Um, and, you know, they're in the Champions League places at the, at the minute. And the, the victory against Spurs at the weekend uh, shows that they're, 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 you know, another couple of months of these kinds of results and they'll be, um, you know, after the world cup and they'll be, they'll be well, well in the mix. Spurs, they were beaten at the hands of Newcastle, as we've just sort of discussed and mentioned. Are the wheels falling off Spurs? Are they the real deal? Are they contenders or are they pretenders? It's hard to say. I mean, Conte, by his very nature, you know, it goes from it's 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 feast feast or famine. Uh, often at the same time, it feels um, performances have not been good this season, but they have been picking up results. Um, I think before the um, before the defeat to to Newcastle on Sunday. Um, it, it was the the best start to a Premier League season that Spurs have ever had. So, um, you know, uh, they are um, uh, they've started better than they ever have done before. They're picking up points when not playing well, which you know you would say is the, the mark of a good side. But there does come a point when if you're going to, to try and challenge for trophies or try and challenge the, the, the top two, even more this important this season with Arsenal being, uh, being pace setters uh, and having, uh, having beaten them comprehensively uh, two or three weeks ago. Um, the, the, there will come a point when they, they need to start uh, to start firing, you know, um, it's not helped that uh, Dejan Kulishevsky is uh, has been out injured for a few weeks. He he offers a real uh, he's just perfect for Conte's system on the on the right wing, cutting inside, gets up and down that flank really well. He's got a goal threat, and that kind of allows uh, Son Heung-min to do the to do the, the same job on the opposite flank uh, and cut inside uh, to great effect. Son hasn't been good this season, possibly because uh, because of that. And now they, you know, he's trying to change formation, play a three-five-two, try and get a bit more solidity in midfield with Yves uh, Bissouma, their summer signing from Brighton, uh, has started to play a few more games this season, and they have looked a little bit better in the three-five-two. But at the weekend they played that they played that formation, and they weren't great again. So, uh, and and whenever whenever there is that kind of defeat. Conte is always, um, you know, uh, you know, I need more money, I need more players. 
um, you know, you got 150 million in the summer. So, um, you know, I'm not sure that that's necessarily an excuse that, uh, that he can keep uh, going back to, um, you know, it's always there. It's always a difficulty when you prioritize results over performances. As soon as the results start to slip a bit, you know, we've seen it with Mourinho countless times. Um, that's when supporters, get annoyed and when owners start to get itchy feet. Um, so it's great while you, while you keep picking up the points, but um, if the points start, start start tailing off with defensive football and not being particularly fluid, then uh, then that's when uh, that's when you'll be held to account. Look, j- just finally, Andy, a text that has come in, Arsenal, do they have the depth in their squad? Do you believe they can win the English Premier League? Uh, they don't have the depth in their squad. Um, you know that's been proven by the fact that uh, the Europa League uh, in the Europa League, uh, Arteta is still playing more or less a first-choice team with only one or two changes. And there will definitely come a time when Martinelli, Odegaard, and definitely Gabriel Jesus uh, will need a rest. Um, but uh, I. You know, I've been a big fan of Arteta for since he since he took the job, even in even in his first half a season, and they were getting beat uh, fairly regularly. You could see there is a plan there. They're very well coached. Uh, they start they start matches very strongly, and this season more than more than ever in the past under under the Spaniard, they have started to score when they're on top. Um, if they can keep doing that and uh, stay strong at the back, I don't really see a reason why they can't challenge. I don't think they'll win the league, um, just because the you know history has always shown that experience of battling for for a title really helps to get you to lift the trophy sort of the following season or two seasons later. You know, um, so I think it's probably too soon for them this season. But I think they'll be. I think they'll be up there. I think they're a really good side, and maybe if they can bring in one or two, maybe a midfielder, um, maybe another fullback um, to ease the pressure on, especially right back on uh, on Ben White. Um, then I think they they could well be well be amongst it. Like I say, they're a very very a very very well coached side. And I fancied them to do well this season. I, I, I fancied them to, to make Champions League football. I think that's that, that that's still a very good bet. Um, perhaps not to win the win the league, but I think they'll be they'll they'll be in amongst it. And you, I see no reason why not. Andy Murray, lovely to have you on the program. It's been a wonderful chat. Thank you for your insight. And I know our texters, our callers, and our listeners thoroughly appreciate it. Thank you. Pleasure. Thanks, Mike. Cheers. It is 20 and a half minutes after nine. You're listening to SENZ. Telephone numbers 0800 150 811. You can text us here on 8833 if you do want to talk a little bit of football. I love my football. I just find it just so engaging. You just don't know what's going to happen. It's it's impossible to pick every result. Uh, you just think Manchester City are going to go through the season unbeaten and then Liverpool are the team that ends up beating them and then Liverpool end up going and losing to Nottingham Forest. Spurs start the season brilliantly, then get beaten at home by Newcastle, beaten by Arsenal, the great rival, in that London derby. The narratives that accompany it, 
the coaches and the managers, the sackings, the crowd, the tribalism. And as I've said a hundred times, man, New Zealand rugby should just be looking at that model of and saying that's what we need to try and replicate here. And how do we do it? Well, the first thing you do is encourage freedom of speech, allow your game to be critiqued, and don't have your major broadcast partner as a PR firm for you. 22 minutes after nine, we'll take a break. You're listening to SENZ, 26 minutes after nine, we'll get Andy McGlashan on the, the programme very shortly. And we will talk all things cricket. T20 Cricket World Cup Australia take on Sri Lanka later tonight. When are New Zealand back in action? When are the Black Caps back in action? And who do they take on? I've got to say, I've got to say I've been out of the loop. I've got to be out of the loop. And I'm not sure why. I'm not sure why, for the first time in my life, I'm so disengaged with what is actually going on currently. Maybe it's having two kids and running around after them. Ben, got any answers for me? Oh no, because I don't have. I'm not running around chasing two kids. I'm running around, running around chasing my partner though. That, that's hard enough work. Well, she's into a surfing. I like her. <laughs> uh, but the Black Caps are back in action tomorrow night against Afghanistan, and we'll have uh, Daniel McCarty and Grant Elliott on the call here on SNZ. You wouldn't want to drop that one. No, especially after the way you started. No, you don't want to beat Australia. It's a bit like Liverpool beating Manchester City and then getting beaten by Nottingham Forest, bottom of the table the game following. All the good work is slowly undone. No, one of those days today is I was lucky enough to be able to go and commentate and call the third and fourth playoff between Australia and Fiji at the Defence Force Rugby World Cup and then the final between Australia and New Zealand at College Rifles. Really good crowd, Buck Shelford in attendance, really high quality of rugby. And then I had to drive back out to Mutawai, peak hour traffic here in Auckland. I'm going to bring out the violin shortly. Go and pick up my daughter who went with my wife and my son, take my son to basketball in Waitakere, and then pick her up from Waitakere Stadium, go back out to Mutawai, get her up to swimming, and then jump in my car and drive all the way back into the city to come in here. Hope you don't have one of those gas guzzlers. I do have a gas guzzler. Oh, no. I was just thinking today how much petrol I have spent in recent weeks, and that is sometimes one of the downsides. There's not too many downsides of living out on the beach just north of Auckland in a coastal environment. Mind you, if you're into your running and you saw where I run, you saw where I swim, you saw where we surf, what's available to us fishing-wise, I think you're happy sometimes to compromise. And you've been out to Mirawai in the last few days. Twice, actually. Uh, the, the partner's gone surfing out there hmm. uh, the last, couple, last couple of evenings, which has been good, and then I have to stand on the shoreline and take photos and try yeah. and make her look good. You do need to respect that coast, man. doesn't matter how good you think you are, how good a swimmer you think you are, that beach when it knows it knows no names no reputations no socioeconomic background no religion no creed you name it if you don't respect that that thing will swallow up and spit you out i've seen it at its absolute best and i've seen it at its absolute worst mirawai yeah i've got two things to say to that firstly that's one of the problems with my partner is that she feels like she can tackle anything you she watches the videos of of a, a nazre in, yeah, in yeah. portugal she's like i can do that and i'm like no you can't no you can't <laughs> that's where the phrase confusing ability with ambition came from ben yeah it is but uh, you got you got to admire it but the other thing is is i noticed there were quite a lot of uh, orange road cones on the road out there. Really? Mirawai itself? No, not in Mirawai, on, on the way to Mirawai. Oh, Because yeah. I, know, I know you love Ono Bloody, Orange Cone. Oh, well, if, they were, if we were having, you know, how we had that um, 
when John Key was Prime Minister and we were looking at changing the flag there, I would just simply have a flag now with an orange cone in the middle of it. I think that sums up New Zealand at the moment. You might have a pothole as well, possibly. Would you have the four red stars, Southern Cross in there? You'd probably make those orange too, wouldn't you? Anyway, we're going to talk some cricket, T20 Cricket World Cup up next. You're listening to SENZ Telephone Number. If you do want to phone the programme, 0800 150 811. You can text the programme here on double... What is it? Double eight, double three, isn't it? There you go. I'm not seeing the new ball too well. I'm swinging and missing outside off stump. I'm a little bit dazed and confused tonight. You know, everybody, it doesn't matter what job you have, you can just have those days where it just doesn't go that well. Radio's a tough one because you are going to have good days and bad days, but sometimes it's there for everybody to hear. And so I don't pretend. I just like to share my emotions. Say, yeah, I'm a little bit flat today. So I need you sometimes to help me. I need you to pick me up. I'm like that rock band at the end of a long, long world tour. Well, okay, maybe domestic tour, small clubs, small pubs, who is just having one of those nights and we need you to pick us up and bring us home. 0800 It is 25 minutes away from 10. We continue talking all things sport. The T20 Cricket World Cup underway in Australia tonight. Australia looking for redemption. They take on Sri Lanka. Andrew McGlashan is a man on the ground working for ESPN Crick Info. He joins us. Andrew, good evening. Welcome. Hi there. Good to be with you. Now, football team first with that English accent. Who do you support, Andrew? <laughs> I'm afraid I'm going to say nobody. Um, it's never been a massive thing for me, and I've, uh, I've been in Australia for too many years now, especially. So, yeah, no no major football team. It was Liverpool way back in the oh, day. But, oh, yeah. oh, oh, you're no, a smart man, no. Andrew. That's the, that's the only answer we needed. That is the only answer <laughs> we needed. That is the correct answer. Without doubt, the most intelligent Englishman I've ever spoken to ever on this radio show. Well done, Andrew. Brilliant. Uh, OK, well, I'm glad I've got that one right. OK, any changes to this Australian team? Are we likely, are we likely to see Steve Smith come in? I know there is a big call from the Australian public to see him come in somewhere in the side. No, I don't think we'll see Stephen Smith tonight. I think they'll stick with the same batting lineup. We may get one late change, though, because Adam Zampa has tested positive for COVID this, af- uh, this afternoon. So they may decide not to play him. Of course, there's no stipulation anymore. Players are, are free to carry on if they are feeling healthy enough to play. But uh, they need to make a call on Zampa now in the next hour or so. So we may see a change there, which could bring Ashton Agar into the side on his home ground. So if that, I think, will be the only change if it happens, I think they'll stick with the batting order and save them. Look, um, it wasn't a great performance a few days ago, but we thought you were the right team then and you're still the right team now. So I think they'll get another go. Mm. How much psychological damage was done to Australia after that heavy defeat to New Zealand? Oh, I mean, yeah, I mean, psychological. It was. I mean, the biggest damage that was done was net run rate damage. That was the biggest thing to them. I mean, you can kind of, losing the game is one thing, but the margin of defeat is almost, it's almost worth another defeat on top of that, if you know what I mean, because they are now minus 4.4 in their net run rate, which is almost too much to overturn in a sense. So they've, they may even have a negative net run rate for the next three or four games now, even if they win. Um, so that's the biggest issue for them. I don't, I don't think they'll be not psychologically as such. They're a, they're a good team. They've got good players. Uh, but it will have been a dent to their pride to lose so heavily in the first game of a World Cup on home soil. And yeah, it's left them well behind the eight ball and their fate may already be out of their hands even if they do win four games from here. Mm. And what do you make of the Sri Lankan team? Oh, look, I think I think they'll struggle tonight uh, because of the extra pace and bounce in Perth, but they are 
they are a good team. I know they lost their first game in the qualifiers and had to do it the hard way to get into the main part of the draw. But they're Asia Cup champions. Um, they came down here to Australia last summer and actually did better than the 4-1 scoreline would suggest in those five T20s. So, look, I mean, Australia are favourites, particularly playing them in Perth. Um, but they can't take Slanker lightly. As we know, in T20, it takes one innings or one magical spell and it changes the game. And they do have a couple of excellent spinners. And we know that Australia don't always play spin that well. So Australia favourites, but it's certainly not a given that they'll win this one. Mm-hmm. And, and what have you made of teams like Ireland and Afghanistan in terms of their progression? Are they slowly, slowly getting themselves up to a genuine, consistent international level? I mean, I always remember watching Sri Lanka here in New Zealand back in 1983. We've sort of seen Bangladesh slowly beginning to establish themselves. Can we say the same about the Irish in Afghanistan? Yeah, I think we can. Certainly Afghanistan. I mean, they are a full-member uh, test nation now. So so they, they've developed superbly. They have a number of match winners in their side. I mean, um, they're, they're obviously playing New Zealand um, tomorrow. And it's a magical four overs from Rashid Khan can, can, can win a game of T20. Ireland, I think, are a little bit further behind. They've got some issues in terms of like where they prioritise certain formats of cricket. Um, they are they are a full member nation too, but they've sort of parked test cricket for the short term to focus on white ball. It was massive for them to get through into this Super 12 stage because there was a thought that their T20 cricket, uh, cricket had stagnated a little bit over the last few years so this is a really important moment for them and both are very very competitive sides and particularly for Ireland mm. are doing it really without enough exposure they they should play more than they do in a sense and some teams don't offer to play them enough England have been guilty of that over the years so they are progressing and it's great for for world cricket and the Shranker example you make is a is a very good one and hopefully in the next five or ten years particularly Afghanistan might maybe might be that next sort of Sri Lanka story Mm. Uh, yeah, I want to talk about Zimbabwe because very much an emerging power in the 1990s, the early 2000s. Then we had Mugabe. We had a sort of you know a major a player revolt. The whole political landscape uh, just wasn't conducive for you know to playing international cricket. Where are they currently sitting, Zimbabwe? Uh, they're improving. I mean, they are showing some really positive signs. Actually, um, they were lucky last night to get away with a point against Africa, of course, because of the way. Um, the, the rain intervened when Slavko were on the brink of winning, but they came here to Australia a, a month or so ago for an ODI series and took a game off Australia, which was a notable achievement. They performed well at home. So there are real green shoots of recovery there in Zimbabwe cricket. There's a long way to go, but they've got a very good guy in charge of them, Dave Houghton, the former Zimbabwe legend uh, with the bat. Uh, so he's coaching them now. And, and they've got some really good cricketers in there, led, of course, by Sikandar Raz, who's having mm. a terrific year across all formats. So they are really growing again, I think, and hopefully they can be a good story in the years to come because, yes, as you say, they went through some horrendous years, um, not not for their fault in, in many ways, and hopefully now they are emerging from that and be a competitive force again. Mm. Let's talk about England. So one day World Cup champions um, have had a very good season in Test cricket under, let's use that phrase, baseball, under Brendan McCullum. <laughs> Has that confidence, that attacking ability, even though McCullum's got nothing to do with this T20 side, has that sort of just flowed through into this T20 team? Oh, they always had that. I mean, you saw the way they played leading up to the 2019 World Cup. And knowing the audience I'm speaking to, I won't mention how that finished, of course. But um, but the, the way they played, they changed the brand of ODI cricket. And every team in the world has tried to copy England in ODI cricket since then. And they've always and they've also played that way in T20. So I think they always had that. What they went through in the summer back in England was a bit of a transition 
from coaches. Uh, Matthew Mott, the Australian, took charge of the one-day team, while Brendan took charge of the test team. And there, was a, there were some difficult results in that home summer. While everyone just sort of gelled together, they lost. The captain, Owen Morgan, he, of course, retired as well. Josh Butler took over. took them a few months to gel everything together. The tour to Pakistan before this World Cup was vital for them. They won that 4-3, played some excellent cricket, and they've looked very good so far here in Australia. So they are one of the favourites um, for this World Cup, and they are still a trendsetter in white ball cricket at the moment, just given how aggressive they are at the bat and how deep they bat. Um, they were a bit messy in the chase against Afghanistan, but they got over the line mm. comfortably enough. So it'll be ranging to see how they go through the remainder of this group stage. I want to talk about New Zealand finalists at the last T20 Cricket World Cup, finalists in the two previous one-day World Cups, Test Cricket World Champions. Why are they still not given the credit? Why are they still sort of perceived as sort of minnows and perhaps not taken seriously? Well, I'm not convinced that is the case, to be honest. I mean, I think that is a bit of a legacy from how they were viewed maybe five or six years ago. And I mean, it's a little bit of a self fulfilling prophecy they're always asked about it like in every build up to the world cup but actually if you read a lot of what's written about new zealand particularly when they won that world test championship a year ago and when they got to the then followed it by getting to the final of the world uh, of the t20 world cup last year i genuinely don't think that people do now see them that way certainly a lot of people they may they'll always be corners of the world to see a team in a certain way but i genuinely don't think they see the team that way i, I think what's happened leading into this tournament is there has been a little blip in their results in the last 12 months. Their test form has fallen off a little bit. Their white ball form has been a little bit indifferent at times. Uh, but they've come to this World Cup and they've beaten the host in the first game in, in as perfect a game of cricket as you could see. So if there was any doubt about where they would stand in this tournament, I think that opening performance has put it to bed. But whenever I hear New Zealand asked about being this underdog or being however they're viewed at these World Cups, I do have the feeling that they kind of moved out of that now and if they haven't then it's completely unfair they should not it's years and years have gone since they should be viewed that way that 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 record you read out in the question of world cup finals and test championship winners has, should have put that to bed uh, once and for all it may always be something that is lingering there in the background because they are the small country that do they punch above their weight and that narrative always seems to go with them but um, I certainly hope they're not viewed that way anymore and obviously nothing would help that more than if they did get a, a white ball trophy uh, in the next few weeks. Uh, I was just going to ask you, David Warner, Aaron Finch, uh, uh, are mm. they a weakness here for Australia? Is, did New Zealand show the rest of the world the blueprint for success? Oh, I think Aaron Finch is a weakness for sure. His form has been a major talking point leading into this tournament. I mean, he's retired from one-day cricket just a few weeks ago. He's basically clinging on to get through this World Cup and try and win on home soil. And then the expectation is he will retire from T20 as well after this tournament. I wouldn't say David Warner's a weak link. He's had a tremendous run in T20 cricket. His numbers in T20 are out of this world. Um, but New Zealand did a good job on them both in that first game. I mean, chasing 200, Australia had to go hard. Uh, Warner was unlucky to be bowled off the back of the bat. And then, yeah, Aaron Finch found cover trying to be aggressive, which he had to be chasing 10 and over. So, I mean, yeah, Aaron Finch is an issue for Australian cricket. It has been for, for a good few months now. David Warner, less so. Um, he, he is a player with a tremendous record. He didn't get runs the other night, but I expect he'll get runs at some point during the tournament. Less confident about Aaron Finch. Um, I think he, he is really clinging on at the moment. Yeah. Let's just talk about the catch from Glenn Phillips. Uh, is that one of the better catches you've seen? 
Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, just stunning, wasn't it? I mean, the ground he had to make, um, how clean he took it, and then the celebration to cap it all off, it was it was magnificent. But not the first time we've seen it, is it, from Glenn Phillips? You just have to go on YouTube. I think he has his own highlights reel on YouTube <laughs> of these spectacular catches, and it, it's absolutely worth it. He is, I mean, it's easy to say, but I think it, he is one of the greatest outfielders I think I've seen in the game, and he's such a versatile field. Obviously, he can be a backup wicketkeeper mm. as well. At times, he's just such a brilliant athlete. Um, so, yes, absolutely one of the, the finest catches I've seen. Um, and it was it was a stunning. It was great. There was a big crowd there to see it as well. Um, yeah, he, he's, a, he's a magnificent fielder. He's the sort of guy who could win your World Cup with his fielding. Yeah, and we must congratulate the Australian public too. The crowds have been very good. I mean, stunning crowd for that Pakistan-India game. 90-plus thousand at the MCG. Wow. Yeah, I mean, magnificent. I mean, that was just one of the greatest games you could wish to see, wasn't it? And, and that, yeah, I sold out MCG. 35,000 at the SCG. I think there's due to be about 25,000, hopefully, in Perth tonight to, to watch Australia, Sri Lanka. So, yes, yeah, it's, it's been a long time coming. This World Cup obviously delayed by two and a half years uh, by COVID. Um, so, yeah, it's good to see. It's still quite early in the cricket season here as well. So it's been good to see the, um, the take-up so far. And hopefully that continues. It might need Australia to have a good tournament to, to keep that momentum going right to the end. Uh, which, of course, will split opinion whether people want Australia to have a good tournament, of course. Uh, but in terms of having that, that, the host going well is important, I think, for a global event. So um, hopefully Australia get on a bit of a run and that also encourages people to perhaps uh, buy some late tickets. Well, half of New Zealand live there, so New Zealand always get plenty of support anyway. <laughs> hey, um, Andrew, look, lovely having you on the programme. Thank you for the insight. And again, I've just, just so much respect that you're technically a Liverpool fan. Well, I'm glad that's owed me some kudos. But yeah, glad to be with you anytime. Yeah, thank you. Really appreciate it. Out of uh, ESPN Crick Info, Andrew McGlashan there talking all things the T20 Cricket World Cup. Sri Lanka, Australia set to go 12 o'clock New Zealand time tonight. New Zealand take on Afghanistan tomorrow. We'll have live coverage. Daniel McCarty, Grant Elliott with the call from what, four o'clock is it tomorrow? Or was it a little bit later? Oh, 9pm tomorrow night, 9pm tomorrow night. So it is uh, coming up to 12 minutes away from 10 o'clock. Coming up after 10, Shane Howarth on the programme, an interview that we did on Sunday. He's just going to give us his thoughts on that MPC file. I know that's a little bit old at what are we up Tuesday now, but he's also just got some good insights in regards to how he thinks the All Blacks might go on this Northern Hemisphere tour, um, particularly against Wales and particularly against Scotland. So we'll do that after 10. Run, 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 run away. It is seven minutes away from ten. It's interesting though, isn't it, Ben, when we do go back, I mean, yeah, the results in the last 12 months for New Zealand cricket haven't been great, but when it comes to the big tournaments, finalists in T20 World Cup four years ago. Was it four years ago? I always, who knows this, is it five because of COVID? I'm not sure whether we're out of sync or not. Finalists of the one-day cricket World Cup last two one-day cricket World Cups for being finalists and then test match world champions and yet I'm not sure that New Zealanders still take us that seriously and I'm not sure that the rest of the world or the major cricketing nations still really see us as a threat Um, and we never sort of talked about as potentially legitimate winners Uh, Yeah, I guess when you you have got that legacy it's kind of like is it if if the Warriors are lucky enough to win a title, is that going to be their legacy? Oh, you won that one, but man, you had thirty years of losing. Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely, and that's hard because it's hard to get behind the Warriors, even if they go on a run of three or four. You go, yeah, but the Warriors will be the Warriors. It's a bit like still watching the Kiwis. Like I think this is a really new, good-looking Kiwis team in the Rugby League World Cup, but 
I'm still haunted by the last 20 years of knock-ons and missed tackles and dumb decisions under pressure. And so I sort of always go into a lot of these games with just a level of pessimism rather than the level of optimism. I think with T20 cricket, as I say, I, I, there's certainly a bit of chance in it. People should remember that prior to Australia having won the T20 World Cup four years ago, the previous two winners to that were West Indies, and they didn't even qualify for the final stages of this tournament. Again, shows the fickle nature of it. Um, it is coming up to five minutes away from 10. Shane Howarth on the programme after 10. We will also talk some rugby league out of the UK. More games coming up in the Rugby League World Cup. I'm not sure why we need 16 teams at the Rugby World League World Cup when I think there's only probably four legitimate sides that can win it. Tonga, Australia, England and New Zealand. Maybe eight teams. The French, Samoa in there. Could maybe bring just a little bit more legitimacy in terms of depth. But beyond that, it's a little bit of a farce, isn't it? Anyway, we'll have that discussion after 10 o'clock. You're listening to SENZ. With you for another hour, myself, Mark Watson, alongside of me, Ben Francis. Nice to have some Guns and Roses. Have just secured my hotel and my airfares for my trip to Wellington to see the Gunners on the 8th of December, even though they're also playing here in Auckland on the 10th. Catching up with some old schoolmates. Nice to go and travel to watch the Gunners. It'll be my what will be my fourth time I've seen them, fifth time I've seen them. Certainly the band that accompanied me on a lot of long bike rides back in the days of my triathlon. Right, we are going to talk the Rugby League World Cup around about 10.30. But first up, we're going to replay an interview that I did with former All Black and Welsh international Shane Howarth on Sunday. Uh, this reviewing that MPC final, but also... Just getting his thoughts on a couple of a couple of other rugby issues, and his predictions for the All Black team when they get to the Northern Hemisphere against Wales, Scotland, and England. But first up, I asked Shane what the difference between the two teams was between Wellington Christchurch and why Wellington ultimately got the job done. Oh, I thought all over the park. I thought. Um... You know, they really stepped up. And I thought Duplessy Carisi was... Their loose forward trio, um, I think we're going to hear a lot about them in future years because I thought I thought physically they were outstanding in that area. And and, and that's where I thought they, they... For me, that's where they won it through there. And, and gee, that Ruben Love's not a bad rugby player, is he? Um, and so they had strike power out wide. You know, Julian... I don't, you know, even though he's a little bit probably past his best, is still a danger. Um, but Ruben Love, gee was he was impressive. Yeah, it's interesting. When he was named in that All Black 15 to tour and Sean Stevenson was left out, I was sort of scratching my head because I hadn't seen a lot of Ruben Love, but I've just sort of said in my opening, I can see why he is so highly regarded. There was, I mean, a little bit of Ben Smith about him. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and... Because he's tried, he's been tried at ten in Super Rugby, and that's probably why we haven't seen um, the true worth of, of Ruben. The fact that he can play both is definitely an asset. But he just looks at home at fullback, um, you know. And that, I think it was Duplessis Carisi that made the break that put him away. I might be stand corrected on that. 
but um, the, the speed he showed um, to get you know to run the 45, 50 metres he had to go showed he had a bit of toe. But he's also what I like about him is his kicking game. You know, it's pretty on on spot, and that's what you need as a as a fullback. And um, and he stepped up and goal kicked when Aiden Aiden Morgan missed a couple, which I thought, oh gee, I hope it doesn't come back to bite them in the bum. But um, so he stood up calmly, swallowed the goal that that made sure they won the final. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot to like about the young fella. Mm. Asafa Amua. I mean, we talk about ball carrying forwards. We talk about mobility. I'm just amazed that he still can't make. I know he's been called up for injury cover at the moment, but I'm still amazed that he can't get in the All Blacks ahead of Dane Coles or Cody Taylor. Mm, I would agree with that, Wado. I would absolutely agree with that. I mean, Samasoni Takiaho has, has cemented his place, hasn't he? He's just absolutely. Beast, but um, but a suffer. Well, yeah, I, I'm not sure what more he has to do to put himself ahead of, of those two guys. Now I know there's probably a bit of loyalty rolling in there, but purely as a as a footy player, as they are at the present state. Amor um, should be should be ahead of those two guys, no mm. doubt. Yeah, equally, just at first five eight, Fergus Burke for Canterbury, developing nicely, a typical sort of Cantabrian type player, really good percentage footballer, kicks well, good decision making. Then you got Jackson Garden Bashup, who's sort of a an unseemly looking player. He doesn't fit that sort of traditional rugby build that you expect these days from backs, but he likes to take the line on. I, I just scratched yep. my head there too yesterday, thinking how does Gatland? get into that all-black 15 over two players like that? Yeah, I think the problem with, with Jackson is he, he's, there's been a bit of inconsistency. However, I think through this MPC campaign, he, he's shown that you know he's cemented the 10 spot. He does attack the line well. He made a couple of lovely half breaks that, that set them free last night. Um, and I think it's probably just a wee bit late, but I think if he carries that form on um, and takes him, you know, he's sort of, with with Super Rugby, he was kind of like I said, just a little bit inconsistent. But if he takes that NPC form to the next level, then I, he's got to be knocking on the door, or at least being talked about in, in selection discussions. Mm-hmm. Oh, I thought the one thing that was quite amusing, and I think it almost cost Wellington in the finish, and that was the substitution of TJ Perinara. I'm not sure why the teams continue to do this, why they preordain guys to come mm-hmm. off at a certain point when the guy's playing well. He doesn't look like he's out of steam. And then it almost felt like a little bit of moral corruption to get him back on the field at the end, where a forward, you know, replaced, <laughs> replaced a forward with a guy yeah. that's already left the park. And I thought, hey, hang on a minute here, guys. You don't want to tarnish this victory. Mm, I I just wonder if in the back of the minds and in the coaching box they thought they'd had the game won. Um, that's the only reason I think you, you take someone of TJ's um, experience and and fight and and mongrel. Um, that's the re- that would be the only reason I think you to take it off that they thought they had it in the bag. And then I thought when Canterbury scored that blink and try, I thought here we go. This is um, this is gonna something's gonna happen here. But Wellington's defence off that kickoff. Um, from the late try from Canterbury was was outstanding, um, and it got them it rewarded them with a penalty, and and that's where Ruben Love won the game. But yeah, I, personally, if I was in the coaching box, I wouldn't have taken TJ off. It's too much fight in, the, in him, and, and it's too much experience in in that cauldron to have, to have done that. Um, but thankfully, it didn't cost them. We we were Canterbury disappointing. Where did they get this wrong last night? Oh look, I, I thought physically they, they they were beaten up front. I just I just thought the the Wellington pack had it on them, and Canterbury's very disciplined and and very strong up front, but they just didn't seem to give the, 
give the back line much much front foot in, in, in my opinion I just thought I thought they were physically out muscled by by what was and it was an excellent Wellington performance you know Canterbury were weren't bad last night they just they were just beaten by by a side that was on fire mm-hmm. how much emphasis is placed you, you talked about some you know there were key moments and you talk about from the kickoffs, you score, and then from the kickoff, you turn possession over, or you make mistakes, and suddenly you find yourself back mm. under pressure. How much emphasis is placed on exiting from the kickoff? Yeah, look, I, and and by and large, down through through the Crusaders down to Canterbury, they're very good at their exiting. It just, I just think they they just got that one a bit muddled. They isolated a guy, and and that was where the turnover was. And it is, it's crucial when you're in that area that you can't leave a guy isolated. Um, going into any sort of of ruck or any sort of physical contact because, you know, like I said, Wellington they were hungry. Their, their loose forward trio um, were, were onto everything, and and so that was only a millisecond of a of an isolation, but it, it, it just meant Wellington could get on the ball, and um, and it just didn't allow Canterbury to to get the exit that they would have wanted. I just, just, I just want to come back to the Wellington loose forward trail. Look, at the moment, we've got Sam Kane, Shannon Frizzell, Akira Wani, Dalton Papalihi, Artie Severe and Hoskins Atutu are our loose forward make-up for the All Blacks mm. end of the year tour. Is there enough time prior to the World Cup for the likes of Caleb Delaney, Duplessis, Karifi, who I think, like you, just was superb last night, and Peter Luckey to actually yeah, make a play for the All Blacks here? Yeah, I, you know, I thought the combination of those boys, that luck, I, you know, I hadn't seen a lot of them. Um, but, geez, he's not a bad footy player. Um, and they've got a really good combination, you know, that luck is the, the, the powerful carrier. Um, Duplessis Karifi's on the ball everywhere, and Delaney's um, kind of allowed to get in and do all the, all the hard work. And it'll be, I guess it'll be what happens with the All Blacks on this Northern Tour as to whether spots open up or spots get cemented. Mm. Um, and I think it, it's a very crucial tour and that, you know, the guys that have gone with the All Blacks squad, they can cement their, their place in the World Cup or alternatively, they can they can play themselves out of it. So I think that the Northern Tour is going to be very, very crucial um, to see who cements their spot and who leaves a spot open for the likes of Karifi or Lakai or someone to come in, you know, and and, and remove them from that. Mm-hmm. Just on that, and we'll segue into it. I mean, you've played for Wales. You understand the Northern Hemisphere. Have they got their best chance of beating the All Blacks, do you believe, in a couple of weeks? Haven't beaten the All Blacks since 1953. Is this their best chance? Mm. Oh, look, it's a it's a bit of a hoodoo, and, a, and I'm not sure that, that it'll be knocked on the head. Because the, the hard thing is um, the All Blacks, um, have been playing up till recently. I think it, the last game was about a month ago. Whereas Wales haven't, like they haven't played rugby for a while. So, and they're the first test. So generally, um, you know, I, I think the All Blacks will get over over the Welsh. It's the Scottish that will be a very interesting game because people write Scotland off, but under Gregor Townsend, they've become quite a good footy mm-hmm. side. Um, you know, whether they have the strength up front to to um, allow it to free their backs because Gregor Townsend was a fantastic running ball footy player and you see that in Scotland, but they've got to get the front um, foot. So that Scottish game is going to be a very interesting one. And then England, um, well, we know what England brings. So are we going to be, are we going to match that and get through them? So I'm really looking forward to this tour to see 
you know, the outcome of, of the games. But look, I'd love my, my whole Welsh boys to get over them, but I can't see it. Mm-hmm. Shane Howarth, my guest on the programme, former All Black, former Welsh international as well. Uh, Shane, just getting back to the MPC, um, disappointing crowd last night again. Uh, stadium really, well, mm. I'd argue, wasn't even half full. So, what are we looking at? Maybe seven, yeah. eight thousand people turning up. And this is Canterbury we're talking about, who have a rich history, who have an expectation, the last bastion of hope when it comes to rugby. Uh, how, how much trouble are we in here domestically? I mean, what does New Zealand rugby need to do? Uh, is the game being neglected at an MPC level, do you think? think well i mean the crowds are, are saying it isn't it like watching auckland um wellington semi um you know there was there was it wasn't a big crowd was it wellington auckland semi yeah, it was yep. it? yeah in wellington auckland, yep. but yeah yeah and um uh, that wasn't i mean sky stadium looked fairly empty so that and that's that's that is a worry um because you know this is the in, every time you go overseas or every time I've been overseas, people just talk about the NPC and, and the players that come through and, you know, the, the little baby nursery it is of, of New Zealand rugby, and it is. The concern is that um, how do we get that back to the crowds coming in? And I guess mm. a big thing is that back when I was playing, All Blacks were playing. So the NPC final, all the All Blacks were playing in it. Mm. Um, it doesn't happen that way now. Um, and, and I think, I don't know whether there's got to be a way to look at getting them back involved in the NPC because that's the way you'll get crowds in. Mm. You know, they, they, they want to come and see the Sam Whitelocks. They want to come and see the, the Sam Canes and, and, and the Waikato and Bay of Plenty jersey. You know, imagine if Sam Canes playing for Bay, you know, to fill the tower on the domain. You know, that's, that's what they want. And I think that's, that's the problem at the moment is there's no All Blacks there. Um, so the attraction... For the for the crowds probably isn't what it, what it would be if an All Blacks running around on the field or if five or six All Blacks are running mm. around on the field. So I think that, I, I don't know how they do it. What I I haven't got the answer to it, but I'd love to see All Blacks playing more NPC because then it gives more credence to the NPC. Well, yeah, but it's also starting to creep into Super Rugby, isn't it? It wasn't that long ago that you missed the first four or five games too because you were tired, mm. and then you know you've still yeah. got their All Blacks, even though sometimes they miss week after week of injury, they still have that mandatory week off, which is because they've been an All Black. Um, I, I mean, I look at the Auckland performance against Wellington in that semi-final. I think, man, is this the best players Auckland club rugby has to offer? And you know, I sort of cynically think to myself, well, Auckland. New Zealand rugby believe as long as St Kennigan's and King's College are continuing to deliver talent, we're going to be okay. <laughs> I mean, it, it's a it's a bygone era, and I hate people saying in my day, but I, I was lucky when I came up through Maris, I had All Blacks playing alongside me, which made me a far better player when I was in Auckland. It was just full of All Blacks, so it helped you as a as a player um, to progress and, and to become better. Um, and it, as I said, it, it drew crowds because. Um, you know, that's how it was. I don't know how they're going to do it, Watto, because there is a lot of rugby now. You know, Super Rugby starting in Feb, and then bloody do they, they play the, the um, July, June, July test matches, and then, they, then they're in, um, into the, the Northern Hemisphere tours. So um, whether, whether you can get players into MPC, I'd love to see it, but... Uh, I'm just not sure how they can do it. Okay, look, other topic I just want to touch on with you because I'm not a big fan at all. I, I'm just over players taking these so-called sabbaticals. Um, and this is a way mm. of New Zealand being able to prop up their incomes 
not at their expense, yeah. but at the same time, you know, in 2024, Wellington Hurricanes fans are not going to be able to see Geordie Barrett, not going to be able to see Artie Severe because they're going to be playing in Japan. I mean, to me, if the if the aura of the All Black jersey, if you need to stay here and be given all of those incentives to play for the All Blacks, as far as I'm concerned, you should just bugger off and go. Yeah, it's a funny one, isn't it? It's, um, it's the chicken and the egg, really. If you say no, they're gone. Um, Are they gone, though? I, 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 well, I mean, yeah, it's speculation, isn't it? But if, if you know, Artie Sevier came up and said, oh, I want a sabbatical, no, sorry, mate, then he's probably going to head over to Japan and, and play full-time or head to Europe. I would assume. Um, yeah, and, and then and, and then and then what you do is you go and take Duplessis Karifi and you go and take Peter Lackey and you say, "Do you want to be an All Black gentleman?" And we move on. You know, we yeah. seem to we we seem to go out of our way, don't we, to try and keep these marquee players here, but do nothing in mm. regarding keeping our top coaches here. Let's just go. If you're not Steve Hansen and you're not part of the crew, go take all our intellectual property overseas and just disappear. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I can I can understand your frustration. I, I and. You know, a part of me goes, yeah. If, if I'm not sure about sabbaticals, I never, never have been. However, do you want to keep the player? But you've just put a good point in. You know, if, if Artie goes, well then, Dubasek Briefy here's your chance, or Peter Lakai here's your chance to to go through and and become an All Black. So I think we'll always have that um, player behind. Um, so yeah, I can't argue with what you're saying there. Okay, look, Shane, I appreciate you coming on the program. Fresh Choice, Mungaree Bridge, the finest supermarket in all of the country. I imagine you've got some wonderful Labour Weekend specials. I mean, the service is simply remarkable. Your your, your fresh produce is, well, it's a cut above anything. Thank you very much, Wada. I'll pay you later. No, no, you don't need to pay me, mate. I I say it because I believe in it, mate. I travel from Uruguay just to shop in your store. Cheers, mate. There you go, Shane Howarth. He does. He does. Fresh choice. Mungaree Bridge in Auckland. If you come in from Auckland, you fly and go out through the airport. Yeah, sort of just before you, you go over the actual Mungaree Bridge itself, you just sort of take the little off-ramp and right there by Mungaree Mountain, go in, have a chat to Shane Howarth. A text coming in from Jess in Perth. Uh, I've got a lot of time for Jess. He says, Mark, what are your thoughts on the All Black Springboks cash grab before the 2023 World Cup? Well, it's a warm-up game, isn't it? I guess the big concern going into a game like that is, yep, you're going to fill the coffers. Is it going to mean too much in the context of the World Cup? No. Is it going to be a good lead-in game? Well, how far out is it? We're talking the 25th of August. Not close enough to the World Cup itself. Cash grab, you want to win this. Do you risk injury? Of course you do. I've got to say, though, I have always felt that taking test matches to Twickenham and actually booking out Twickenham ourselves and therefore taking the gate takings um, is probably not a bad financial model. Is it a cash grab? (sighs) Yes. Is it the commercial reality for the All Blacks? Yes. But there are also some major flaws in it as well. How legitimate is it? Is this a legacy test? Does winning or lose it 
have any consequences? Is it just an exhibition? But really, really good question, Jess, and do appreciate the text as well. We're going to catch up with... Sorry, Ben John... John Davidson, my apologies. I'm just having one of those nights tonight. I'm just not seeing a new ball. I don't have clarity. I've got to say, I felt a little bit nauseous before I came in on here at 7 o'clock tonight. I'm not sure I've quite recovered. So we'll talk the Rugby League World Cup as well. That before 11. But do keep your thoughts coming here on double eight double three. If you do want to phone the programme, the lines are open. Happy to take your call on 0800 Um... Michael Holdsworth from Wellington says, I'll be a true blue Wellington fan. 22 years, long time to win the MPC. Look, believe it or not, people might not believe me, but I was actually at the 2001 MPC final. I think it was 2001, 2000 was it? When Wellington did beat Canterbury the last time. I was working for Nike at the time and Canterbury were one of the only two MPC sides that we sponsored, the other being North Harbour. 20 minutes after 10. Okay, it is SENZ. 25 after 10. Fair to say I can't sing. I think there's no doubt about that. Interesting, Ben, I dropped my kids. Ironically, I've got a bus stop just down the bottom of the road of where I live and the kids could potentially walk down there. But when they were really young, there were too many kids at that bus stop. And they said, oh, can we go to the one further up the road? So I dropped them up at the fire station bus stop at Muriwai. And But on the way down, I go past this first bus stop. They don't really like my music tastes, so I deliberately wind down the front window and turn them up and slow the car right down in front of their mates, and they both just duck down on the back seat, incredibly embarrassed. And I'm like, how can you be embarrassed by Chris Cornell? How can you be embarrassed by Guns N' Roses? Of course, they're not at that age where they can appreciate that music. And they find me embarrassing, Ben. That's hard to believe, isn't it? Me embarrassing. Really? I don't want to question parenting methods, but... uh... Heidi, Heidi, my wife's like, why do you do that? Why do you do that? Why do you wind the kids up? I said, because I'm always accused of being the grumpy one at home and I want to be remembered as also being the character. Can't win either way, can you? No, you can't. Lose-lose. Kids are right into their music. And I do try and just infiltrate a little bit of the good stuff like November Rain and the catchy stuff that does come on and Bohemian Rhapsody and a little bit of Queen. Hmm. My partner hates my music, eh? And you're getting married to her? Yeah. You thought this through, Ben? No. <laughs> they change you slowly, Ben. I'm you try- give a little and they want a little bit more. You give a little so and they hard. want a little bit more. A little doesn't quite do it, so the little gets more and more. Quote from Guns N' Roses song, actually. I used to do a little, but a little wasn't doing it, so the little got more and more. Song called Mr. Brownstone. It's about heroin use. Haven't you seen like the bags under my eyes increase over the year? Yeah, no, well, I... I joke often and I joke because it's funny isn't it where you have comedians that will tell wife or have a crack at women and every guy in the room can laugh and relate to it and then they'll tell guy jokes and every woman and wife in the room can laugh at it because clearly there are some generic traits that are common that run through all relationships and I sort of always joke with my always wanted to be a mind reader growing up got married and I became one you know That's a good one. Yeah, there's some... Um, what, what was the comedian I heard the other day? And look, just, just please don't take this seriously. I'm just quoting in jest, and it was just a comedian saying, 
Yeah, uh, my wife told me to get in touch with my feminine side. So I went out, I crashed the car and then gave her the silent treatment for the rest of the day for no reason. <laughs> See, you can relate to that. Women are like, what do you mean? What do you mean? Sounds like something Jimmy Carr would say. It might have been. Was it Jimmy Carr? Might have been Jimmy Carr. He's touring here, isn't he? Or has he just finished? I think it's coming out. Yeah, he's not afraid, is he, Jimmy Carr? No, he's got some good stuff. Especially about cricket. Have you heard his jokes about cricket? No. He, one of his jokes was he said, cricket was invented at rugby school uh, when a boy kicked the ball and they and, and lost it and they were all standing in the field and nothing happened. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, no, it's very clever. See, the good comedians, it's not actually sometimes the narrative, it's the way in which you deliver it, it's the facial expressions, it's the silent pause, sometimes it's the accent. And you just are engagingly funny. But a lot of people these days, oh, comedians, they're offensive. No, they're only offensive if you go and watch them and listen to them. If you don't want to be offended, don't go, don't listen to them, but don't tell everybody else that they should be offended and therefore shut it down. I think last time Jimmy Carr was here, he actually offended Napier by making a reference to the massive earthquakes nearly a century ago. Yeah, look, and and that's him, but you have to understand his genre. He is going to be a little bit of a shock jock type comedian. He is going to say some stuff. He tells the worst joke. He says, this is the worst joke I've ever heard, and he tells the joke, and it is without doubt the worst, most brutal joke I've ever heard, and I would no way, I struggle to actually repeat it myself. It is brutal. But he's building the audience up, and he says, I can tell you a joke even worse, do you want to hear it? I heard this in Australia and he tells the joke and I'm just sitting there going, did you just tell that joke? Because it's brutal. Oh, I'm going to go home and watch some comedy. Yeah. Oh, look, everyone needs a bit of a laugh, don't they? You know, just a, But the good comedians are very good actually drawing attention to some really big issues and in a roundabout way bringing them to the forefront. It is 10.30. You are listening to SENZ. We'll take a break. John Davidson up next. We are talking the Rugby League World Cup. 26 minutes away from 11 o'clock. You're listening to SENZ. Time to talk the Rugby League World Cup. Standing by in the UK is our correspondent, John Davidson. John, good evening. Good morning. Welcome. How are you? Yeah, very well, thanks. Right. We are almost through week two of the Rugby League World Cup. Still one more game to go. Papua New Guinea taking on the Cook Islands and then we get into week three. So far it's been one-way traffic for the sides that come with a big reputation. Australia getting up 84-0 over Scotland. England beating France 42-18. Samoa beating Greece 72-0 and New Zealand beating Jamaica 68-6. Having 16 teams, does it legitimise this Rugby League World Cup or does it somewhat undermine it? Would we not be better with perhaps just eight? No, I, th- I think, to be honest, I think the, the introduction of Greece and Jamaica has been great. Um, they're, they're growing the sport there. There's, um, you know, there's been a lot of hard work put in there. And we do see, you know, blowout scores in, in most World Cups, in, you know, in the Rugby Union World Cup. Um, and I think, you know, there's been some fantastic games as well. If you, if you saw the Tonga game last night, I mean, most people would have put Tonga, expected Tonga to, put 50 or 60 on Wales, but um, Wales were leading for you know, a large chunk of the game and were very credible. Mm. Yeah, so, so, and you've watched across this, so teams like Greece, Jamaica, Ireland, Wales, are they players that 
are coming through the grassroots within those countries or are they NRL professional rugby league players that have been brought up in the likes of New Zealand, Australia, but have some sort of lineage to those countries and therefore are pretty much just guns for hire? Yeah, there's a bit of a mixture. I mean, talking about Greece, um, rugby league was actually banned in Greece until August this year, but they've got, uh, I think it's six or seven uh, locally based players in their squad. Um, and so there is a real uh, mandate growing the, the sport there. Um, obviously, they do have they draw heavily on their, their heritage players in Australia as well. They've got a you know a couple of NRL players and, and some players in the lower leagues, uh, and that's the same across a lot of the countries. But I think um, you know it's a mixture, and I think that should be celebrated and not sort of looked down upon. As long as you know they're not pure heritage teams, and there is um, growth of the sport there, and that that's the key thing. I think mm. raising the profile and then you know, the, the money that's made off the back of the World Cup goes to those countries to, to fund, um, you know, community clubs and participation. Yeah, no, well said, John, well said indeed. So, so looking at England, looking at Australia, New Zealand, uh, let's put Tonga in there. Can we draw comparisons yet? Do we have a sort of sense of who's got their nose in front? Yeah, it's it's been interesting. I think, you know, Samoa were very disappointing. You know, they were talked up a lot before the World Cup. They were very disappointing against England. They got they got flogged. Um, and England have probably been a, a bit of a surprise coming into this World Cup because they don't have, you know, some of their big names of the last decade in the, you know, the James Graham and the Sam, Sam Burgesses uh, and also quite a few injuries, but they've been very, very good. Tonga, I think, have not really hit any straps yet. You know, we know what they can do. Um, you know, they've beaten the Kangaroos, they've beaten New Zealand, they've beaten Great Britain in the past, but they haven't set a light yet. But I think it's been the, the Kiwis and the Kangaroos who, you know, perhaps unsurprisingly have uh, have looked very good so far and they're, they're headed for a semi-final at, at Ellen Road, which, you know, may decide the, uh, the winner of the World Cup in the end because they're both very, very talented teams. Yeah, often look at the Pacific Island teams and often they can be playing out of uh, season a little bit, but I look at Tonga particularly. If they're fit, look out. If they come in slightly unfit, then they're not the force they're capable of being. What have you made of the fitness of Samoa and Tonga? Do they look fit? Samoa definitely in the first game didn't look fit. They didn't look interested. They, you know, they conceded sixty points against England um, when many, you know, I think the bookmakers had them winning that game. Uh, obviously, they, they played Greece in the second game, and that was a much easier opponent, and they. They did look very good against Greece, but they'll, they'll come up against France. They need to win that game to, to book a quarterfinal spot. And um, I think, you know, France are improving. They've got a fully a fully professional team for the first ever time. And obviously the World Cup in 2025 is in, uh, in France, sorry. So they're, they're on the up. Um, but I think with Tonga, um, they're, they're just sort of, you know, finding their straps. They, they played uh, Wales last night, but as Christian Wolfe admitted, you know, there's a lot of improvement to come from that team and they'll need to improve if they're, they're going to beat tomorrow and then perhaps England in the semi-finals. When you look at the depths of the squad depth for England, New Zealand, Australia, which group of coaches is going to have the most difficult job of determining who their starting 13 will be and who their match day 17 will be based on depth? Yeah, I think that is, again, Australia and New Zealand. Um, you know, you look at Australia, Nathan Cleary had 28 points on debut against Scotland. Um, but obviously, uh, DCE and Cameron Munster have very, got a very good partnership. They're, they're one origin uh, for Queensland this year. So that's a tough uh, tough one for Melbourne Inga to, 
a breakdown. And then, you, and then you look at New Zealand. I mean, just that forward pack. I, I think they've got the best forward pack in the world. So how do you fit so many good players um, into that equation? It's, it's very difficult. Uh, and, and also, against Jamaica, I mean, Dylan Wittenny, Zalesniak was just scoring tries for fun. He's probably not been a, a first-choice winger for a couple of years for New Zealand, but he's definitely um, very tight in the ring with how he played. Mm. Uh, last week. And how's the tournament been received in the UK? Is there a genuine um, sort of sense of occasion? Is there a novelty factor associated with it? Yeah, I think, I think there has been a sense of occasion. I think there's been a bit of debate around around ticket prices. Obviously, um, you know, prices were set uh, before the postponement. Uh, obviously, the World Cup was supposed to be played last year, but that was pushed back a year because of COVID. So, so there's been some disquiet about some of the pricing. Obviously, there, there are cheap tickets at every game, but um, there are obviously higher priced ones as well because they, they need to fund the next cycle of, of international footy. So there has been a lot of chat about that. But I think overall, apart from one game, which was uh, New Zealand and Lebanon in, in Warrington, there was only about 5,000 there. That that was a disappointing crowd to see, you know, some of the best players in the world. Mm. But apart from that, the crowds have been, have been quite healthy. I think, you know, probably... As expected, um, but you know England doing well uh, so far in the first two games has definitely helped. I think a, an overall um, boost to the tournament. Mm-hmm. And of course, half of New Zealand's youth live in London, and I'm sure half of Australia's youth also live in <laughs> London. So I'd imagine that both Australia and New Zealand would be getting plenty of hometown support. Yeah, well, Australia actually played in Coventry uh, against Scotland, and it was probably a shame that they didn't hold that in, you know, Fulham or. Uh, Shepherd's Bush or somewhere around there because obviously, as you mentioned, there's a huge uh, uh, influx of, of Aussies and Kiwis. So there's only uh, the one game in London for the men's tournament, which is a, a semi-final. So hopefully, you know, we get a, a big crowd uh, for that because, yeah, it's, it's going to be a huge game. Look, first major tournament in the UK too, where it's no longer God Save the Queen, it's God Save the King. Um, have people been singing that with the same enthusiasm and passion as that for Queen Elizabeth? They have, they have, and, and it was good to see Victor Radley. Uh, I think he um, obviously plays the Roosters and born and raised in Australia, and he, he didn't know the words uh, when he made his debut for England against Fiji, but I think he'd been working and practising and, uh, you know, singing it proudly against Samoa and against France. So, um, yeah, that was good to see. Yeah, we haven't touched on Fiji. Uh, what did you make of Fiji? 42-8 against Australia, uh, but then bounced back and had a very good victory. Yeah, they've, they've been one that, that's probably been a little bit disappointing, at least in the first game. Um, you know, a bit of disquiet and sort of political wrangling coming into the tournament. Their coach has been sick. Um, probably a few players uh, that they could have called on or, or would have needed um, haven't made themselves available. And they weren't that impressive against Australia, but then they, um, they walloped Italy, I think it was 60-4 to four in their second game. Um, so, yeah, that was much more what we expect from a... A team with Api Corusau and Viliami Kikau to to do so. I think they'll um, you know they'll make mincemeat of Scotland, uh, unfortunately for the Scots, and they'll go through to the the quarterfinals. And I think it'll be New Zealand that they uh, that they face. So that should be an amazing game, considering in the last World Cup Fiji upset the Kiwis in uh, in New Zealand. Oh, everybody upset the Kiwis in New Zealand. It was a disaster, absolute disaster. <laughs> now, look, in the first week, we mentioned this earlier, England beat Samoa 60 points to six. Now, then Samoa bounced back, beat Greece by 72 points to four. Next up for England, it will be Greece. I mean, are we talking 100, 120 points here? I mean, what, what do England do? What, what do Greece do to try and 
yeah, try and keep this sort of, well, I don't know, within 60 or 70 points. Yeah, I, I, it's going to be very, very hard for Greece. Um, you know, they're not used to playing top quality opponents week in, week out. And this is what they've they've had to do with, you know, with France and tomorrow now with England. I think, I don't think England will hit 100. Um, but yeah, it could be up around 60 or 70 or more. Um, I think the problem for the Greek also is only, they've only got a 24-man squad and they're quite battered and bruised and injured after, you know, the Samoans running at them particularly. So it's going to be a tough ask. But I think, um, you know, talking to the to the Greeks the other day, I went down to training and, you know, they, they've fought so hard just to get to this World Cup to qualify. They had to have, you know, games at midnight. Um, you know, they were, the rugby league was outlawed in Greece. The players were getting arrested to turn up for play. So there's a Hollywood story that they're here and they're enjoying the, the moment and the occasion. They've, they've scored some some great tries against the run of play and, you know, their spirits have definitely not dimmed even though, you know, they face much harder uh, opposition. Have you had a chance to watch any Premier League football? Who's your football team? Uh, unfortunately, my team is Sheffield United in the Championship, so no Premier League football for me. Um, they started the season very well on top, but uh, a few struggling results, so a long way to go uh, when it comes to this season in, in football. No, a good man, though. At least you've got a team and at least you stick with them through thick and thin and you're not a populist like some. No, no, definitely not. Mm. Hey, lovely to have you on the program, John. Really appreciate it. And thank you. It's great insight. No, no worries at all. Thanks for having me. No, you're welcome. 14 minutes away from 11. Listen to SENZ, John Davidson there over there talking the Rugby League World Cup. So week three, we'll see New Zealand take on Ireland. That's on Saturday night, 7.30am or Saturday morning, 730 We've got England taking on Greece on Sunday. We've got Fiji taking on Scotland. We've got Australia playing Italy. We've got Tonga taking on the Cook Islands. We've got Lebanon and Jamaica. That should be a really good, interesting game. Economies of scale. Samoa and France. Big challenge for Samoa. France, not quite the nation they once were. Boy, they were a powerhouse back in the 50s, 60s and 70s. And they've got Papua New Guinea taking on Wales. So that is week three of the Rugby League World Cup. It is 14 minutes away from 11 o'clock. Almost done and dusted for another night here on SENZ. It's been a good night too. We talked earlier this evening with the coach of the men's Black Sox, the softball team name today, Mark Sorensen, on the programme. We have talked English Premier League football. We've talked about the big sponsorship controversies going on in Australia at the moment. Interesting that individual players are happy to put organisations at financial risk because they want to do a little bit of virtue signalling, be a little bit woke, not realising the consequences of their decisions. The reality is, outside of alcohol, probably gambling, tobacco, and the odd bank. I think it's fair to say that sponsorship opportunities are very limited outside of those industries. And so players probably just need to keep quiet and find other ways of getting their political messages across without putting sporting organisations at financial risk. In the case of Pat Cummings, the Australian captain, he's now an environmental warrior. 
global warming seems to be his mandate. Yet, still happy to represent Australia, a country that are responsible for 58% of global coal exports. Happy to go and play in India in the IPL, country that's responsible for 7% of global greenhouse gases and emissions. Happy to buy Chinese-made products, even though there is ethnic cleansing amongst the Uyghur minority in China. United States foreign policy is not the best. As I said earlier, it reminds me of the vegan who walks around in leather shoes. They'll all claim they don't. But it's a really slippery road you go down if you're trying to take a political stand and come away from it squeaky clean because ultimately it's impossible for you to practice what you preach. We will look at this in greater detail on Friday afternoon when I'm on ECNZ. Ben Francis, some final thoughts, some final words from you, some final pieces of wisdom. How's your darts going? Uh, last Tuesday. That didn't, I went, sound, that didn't sound um, overly... No, well, um, last Tuesday I went, I went to my local club for the first time since probably May because uh, I usually work on the Tuesday night, and I, I played really well. I won four out of six, and I had three 180s in there. Quite happy with that. And then the Wednesday night, I was like, oh, you know, I'm going to go to Birkenhead. I'm going to give give that a crack. And You fell to pieces. Just fell to pieces. That's the game you're in, and it's about finding that consistency, and that's what the great players do. I was do. Throw, throwing the dart the exact same way, and it was just not going in the right spot. And I've, I, I, only, I, started, I kind of just had a few days off, you know, and just started throwing again. Uh, today, actually. Mm, no, it's, that's the key, isn't it? It's finding that consistency. But what you've got to do, Ben, is hang on to those days where you have the three 180s, know what you're capable of doing, and go, I know I can do it because I did it. Now I find the formula of bringing it out more consistently, where exactly. often athletes will beat themselves up around the bad days. And you are going to have more bad days than good days. The only people that have a lot of good days are the very, very best in the world. But they've had a lot of bad days to earn the right to have good days. Exactly. If I, There's a lot of good and bad days in that narrative. Isn't my, there? my motivation at the moment is uh, listening to Barry Hearn's book. So, Oh, brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah. yeah, what a genius that guy is, mate. Wow, match room. Yeah, boxing. Big fan of his. Snooker, uh, darts, and now doing a lot of things in the nine ball area. Right, that is us. We are done for another night here on SENZ. If you're travelling around the country, do take care. Thank you to everybody that has texted in, listened engaged, abused. It's been an absolute privilege and a pleasure.